This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Denny O'Neill. This is Kevin Conroy. The voice of Batman. Hi, this is Bruce Tim. This is Brian Q. Miller. I'm Christy Mark. Hi, this is Dwayne Swierzynski. Hi, this is Gail Simone. I'm Lee Garbett. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to Batgirl to Oracle. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 184 for December MMXIX, and yes, it is the 10th anniversary. Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, that's okay, because Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. I feel like there's some good juju going on. 
I, I found a good omen as I was shopping at Wegmans after my run this afternoon because I saw the boss lady out in the wild, and that always brings such joy to my heart. <laughs> and it was just nice talking to her. So it's a good omen. So here we are on a good omen night, hopefully, recording this 10th anniversary. And as with all of my other anniversaries, I'm pretty sure, I've brought these two ragtag people with me. I've got Donovan Morgan Grant and Joshua Lappin Bertoni. Well, here we are. Once again. Back where the Oracle was filmed before a live studio audience. Luckily not, because that would take quadruple the time that it will take tonight. It's a terrible strain on their, on their writer's chest. <laughs> well, we have to give everyone sandwiches. Uh, yes, 10 years of you doing this this show. You know, Batgirls have changed. <laughs> many writers, many artists, many guests, many creators, many milestones. But this is the biggest one yet. How are you feeling? <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I'm just thinking 10. It's, it's a huge number, I think, for a podcast and any sort of internet thing. And to think that I've been consistently doing this for 10 years blows my mind. That it started off as a joke blows my mind. And, and <laughs> going through the equipment that you know I've gone through and the guests and interviews and everything, it's yeah, it's been a crazy 10 years. I, I can't believe it, frankly. I, I think I joke almost every other anniversary show, but it would just be amazing to look at all the podcasts since since you began that have launched and have like basically are, are not around anymore today. And like Backer the Oracle is still going while all these other shows have like tried and failed, which uh, is an amazing legacy. It's and it's thanks to the listeners, really, because I do it for me, you know, I guess 50 percent of the reason is, is doing it for me just because I get to trace Barbara Gordon's journey along with you guys. But if people weren't listening, if they weren't downloading and emailing and, and having conversations with me on and off the air, then there would be no point. So very much I am appreciative for uh, you guys, obviously, and then everyone who's currently listening right now. At what, which, which was the first anniversary that Josh and I started like uh, breaking into? <laughs> I'd have to look to see. I think it's probably at least five years because I remember we did like the Batman Robin movie. We did Birds of Prey. Like, I, I know we've done the last few, but I don't think we were there for like the I mean, we were there for the first one. And I don't think we we're there for the second or third. Well, we might have technically been there for the first one because I think that was a call in show. So we oh, yeah. probably called in. It might have been. Yeah. It's been so long. Yeah. Thinking back to all of that. But you bring up a good point. That was one of the things actually I wanted to talk to you guys about is just. Do you have any favorite podcasting, Back of the Oracle podcast moments from these 10 years? <laughs> <Do I? laughs> well, absolutely. I, I mean, like, I think I started talking about it, but like, uh, uh, one of my, you know, a couple of my favorite podcasting, like, recordings ever are on BTO. Um, the Robotech's Chipper Spotlight, <laughs> very near and dear to my heart I'm and sure. my mind. I genuinely think we did a great job with The Killing Joke. Um, tough, rough as it was. And especially when we had like John Ostrander on was was particularly very cool. Mm -hmm. And some some choice quotes. Uh, I love the <laughs> the beginning of us doing a Batgirl or Batman and Robin, where like uh, Josh was riffing on like you know the suggestive title sequence, <laughs> or us talking about the Birds of Prey pilot. Oh yeah, um, various man. times. Yeah, no, no. A, there's been lots of fun times on this show. But um, what say you, Josh? I could go on for like 20 minutes, but I'm going to condense it so that it won't be 20 minutes. But there's just so many favorite moments. I love 
actually when Stella covered the last Batgirl story, that Batgirl one shot by uh, Barbara Randall Kiesel, just because to me, that was like the big milestone for the podcast to get. That was like the moment where every single Batgirl story before, like she became Oracle minus like flashback stuff that was done later was covered. So like, that was like the moment where I was like, okay, like, I think I don't remember what the quote was that I said to her, but like I was like all those times that I like bab splained to you like all those years ago, you can go and kick my ass now because you've uh, <laughs> you've done more than like surpass that. I don't want to pick too many moments that I was in because I feel like that's like egotistical, but I always love like being I, did. The, I, I always love being on for the anniversary shows. That's always fun. And there's always like fun quotes from there. And then um, some kind of. I don't know what you would call these like multimedia BTO moments, like BTO moments that go beyond the podcast. Like for example, this year, uh, Stella doing the presentation at, uh, uh, BGSU for the ba- uh, Batman conference. That was like awesome. That was like a live, like when we say like film before a live studio, that was literally like background Oracle film before a live audience. Yeah. That comic con, which was, I want to say 2014 where, um, Burnside Batgirl team was like kind of doing this informal meet and greet and Stella, you know, uh, buddied up with them and did a little interview with them on the staircase with their editor standing right there. Like that was really cool. And um, just anytime that like um, I love the warm moments between Stella and I say as if she's not here and like the creators like uh, those early Brian Q. Miller episodes were, you know, uh, a favorite of mine. And I don't know, like I said, I can go on. So I'm just going to cut off right here. <laughs> Yeah, I all of those interviews have just been such a blessing that I've gotten them and that I feel like I've developed a pretty good relationship with the majority of the people that I've interviewed. The fact that I love Batgirl Year One so much and I got to talk to their creators in my first year or so when I really didn't have much of a podcasting resume or – article writing resume at all was, was so great and Brian Q. Miller and being able to talk to him a couple of times and yeah the hilarity that we always get into with some of these wacky episodes and of course you know shipper specials or shipper spotlight is, is certainly one of my favorite just because that's near and dear to my heart with with the shipping and yelling at Donovan for some of his picks is <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun and of course I conquered no man's land this year, which was uh, pretty insane, frankly. Or when was it? Maybe it was last year. I think See, that was like the anniversary show last year. Weren't we doing No yeah. Man's Land? Oh, as the last bit, yeah. So I think just being able to conquer that, that mega storyline and looking at my Excel document and just seeing all of these comics, but slowly it's getting, whittled, it's getting whittled down less and less. There's still a lot to cover. But yeah, it's, it's just been a great ride. I'm I'm hoping for... <laughs> More longevity, but hey, I made it 10 years, so one cannot fault me for that. I think of all the children that have like grown up and become Nightwing at that time. <laughs> I know, yeah. I was thinking I should find if there's a child at my current school that was born on December 19th, 2009, since that was the first post, the first everything oh from Batgirl the Oracle. So just seeing if someone, I guess, I mean, it'd have to be in the lower school, but it'd be interesting if it could, I could find somebody <laughs> that was born on that day. Well, I think when we were at like Panera Bread, I like mentioned something about like Jacob and you were like, Jacob's like, I forget what, I forget what you said, but like hey, you said college? something like, He's like graduated either graduated college. college or like something. And I was like, what? Yeah, they're all, yeah, all those babies. I mean, he called in once. They're all 
they're old and we're old with it. He, so he said he listened little... to you when he was like in your eighth grade class and that it blew his mind. He was yeah. old, he's older than he's older than I was when you started. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of weird to think about for sure. Oh, well, these guys, it's funny that we're here together because we just spent a close four days together, four and a half, however you want to think about it, in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago. And so it'd be fun. I'm not going to do a whole Los Angeles special episode with music and all of that business, but just to talk about the sort of hijinks that we got into and, and things that happened before we get into the main event of this particular episode. So the reason why we went to Los Angeles was basically a shared birthday celebration, I, I would say, and then inviting Don along with us. So he got his birthday celebration in there early. And <laughs> the main reason I was going, no offense, is to see <laughs> the Gilmore Girls, the set at Warner Brothers where they filmed Gilmore Girls because I love Gilmore Girls and Josh betrayed me multiple times at least five or six times bringing random people to <laughs> Warner Brothers Josh has no association with Gilmore Girls the strangers had no associations and taking pictures by the gazebo just raised my ire and so finally I was able to go and 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 see it but so that was the the purpose I don't know if we should go day by day quickly of what happened um i mean maybe some of the highlights um yeah so thursday the, the, the adventure that gets to the gazebo too and how like sure we, yeah and and like how how we finally got there i think is like kind of fun too because there were some twists and turns of course yeah so thursday the main that was my birthday and we warner brothers that was the main event and we were taking our little tour and lucifer was filming over there and they're like we can't go in that particular area and while i thought that my my short but yet strong fingers were about to curl around josh's throat we were able to actually walk through it because one of Josh and Don's editors from DC Comics was able to lead us through. So I did get that shiny moment. We got some tours of different DC Comics offices. We got free stuff without any prompting, really. Uh, it was just kind of th thrust upon us. I think the first day was more of a shock for me anyways than the second day because – Joe, he just asked, do you read the omnibuses of Batgirl? I was like, oh, yeah, but I only have the essential. And then he goes to this bookcase and pulls out two unwrapped Bronze Age Batgirl. And I thought, wow, okay. And then I left with an exclusive Batgirl <laughs> statue as well. So that was astounding. I was I was pretty speechless. And I know Don was as well because he was told that he, if he saw anything he liked, he could get it. And he's like, well, what about that? <laughs> Well, exactly huge, that voice. His, his, oh, it was pretty fall. close to that high. Yeah, the Nightfall Part 1 of that huge tome. And then my highlight, you know, Warner Brothers was frankly my highlight. But when people ask me at my workplace what I did, I tell them I went to a burlesque show. As if that's the <laughs> only thing that I ever did. So I do have to tell this long story because I guess I was going through quickly my itinerary at at a lunch time but the burlesque show i stop and i tell all these little details it's important i think to understand so when i say burlesque think in your mind what you perceive that to be in my mind i thought can can moulin rouge a little gam here and there that's it okay so we went to this restaurant slash pub that was paying homage to the rocketeer 
So the mask was there. And then the back, there's a large building that's in the shape of a bulldog. And we're in the main part of the pub restaurant for the majority of the time. You have to go up to the bar in order to order food. And I go up after Donovan, and Donovan comes up to me and says, once you order your food, come, I have to show you something. I'm like, okay. So I go to to Donovan afterwards, and he points out this poster. And it's a woman in a barrel, which is interesting because the main restaurant actually looks like a barrel. And it says, burlesque show, three dates, Lo and behold, 1121, my birthday. A woman, which I still want to know her story, but this woman next to us says, oh, they're a lot of fun. And I said, oh, have you been in one? And she said, no, no, but I've gone to one. So I thought, okay, let's try this. I mean, it's 8 p.m. It's a restaurant. There are windows in this restaurant. What's the worst that could happen? We're waiting for someone to join us. We end up going in the back where there's a nice little heater and, of course, the Bulldog building. Donovan spies ice cream (laughs) advertised on on the Bulldog building. And even they give prices and everything. Don asks, do you want ice cream? I say, absolutely. (laughs) We trot on back to there and we wrench open the door. And lo and behold, a bunch of women and a man, for whatever reason, in various states of undress are there. They ask why we're there we say we came for the ice cream they say scram (laughs) so (laughs) so we thought oh okay that that's what it is so we scurry on back now it's we also don and i also had an adventure where we crossed six lanes of traffic uh trying to get to starbucks for my birthday drink but anyways it's 8 45 the show's about to begin (sighs) the mc comes on and the first thing he says to rile the crowd up is who's ready to see some sparkly titties right at that moment my stomach clenches and i thought to myself what have i done he goes on to explain some rules and i thought who needs rules for a burlesque you know they can dance and touch you you may not dance and touch them and i was getting nervous probably i started sweating but no one noticed so the first act comes out all the girls they're singing the classic from south pacific gonna wash that man right out of my hair they have a quick release towel around them i'm watching this i'm wait waiting for the towel to drop because i knew once it did I would understand what I got myself into. So the towel does drop, and then now we know. So basically the burlesque, this one, uh, their state of undress is panty, panty hose, no shirt, bra, but their nipples were covered with tassels, glitter, or pasties. A callback to your joke from Gotham Chronicle like five years ago. It does go back to that, yeah. So from then on, we just stayed for the first act. I think, you know, I got really what I needed to see to say that I went to a burlesque show. Yeah, I would say most of the acts were pretty tasteful, with the exception of the one with the honey. And uh, even someone sang. So we did have a discussion, of course, you know, what place does burlesque have in this Me Too society and the comparison between burlesque and strippers. So there was a bit of a discussion there. But overall, I mean, hey, I, I did see a burlesque show. So that's exciting. oh are you are you are you happy for the experience or if you could like go back in time would you like not be there i think no i wasn't so uncomfortable it was just that first moment of not knowing of what i was actually going to witness that uh made me super nervous but uh, otherwise i'm happy to have experienced it do i need to potentially see it again i don't think so but (laughs) if you could go back would you warn don about the ice cream or would you just kind of watch the fireworks i would warn don about the ice cream mainly because it was embarrassing for us and it was embarrassing for them i mean i don't want to walk in on someone it's interesting though actually because they're like get out of here but they're about to be naked anyways 
So it was kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to unduly embarrass anyone. So I would have warned Donovan. That was wild. Let's go get some ice cream. It was like hijinks. Yeah. So Friday, you want to take that one, Josh? Um, yeah, Friday, we, there's like, when we say we went to the DC offices, I guess like there was like three different technically DC offices that we went to because, uh, on the Warner brothers lot, which is where we went to Thursday, that's the DC universe offices, which is like the app, you know, that like has Titans and the comics and stuff like that. Friday, we went to, uh, the DC comics, like the publishing building, um, you know, like where the editors are, where Dan DiDio and Jim Lee have their offices, where they do licensing and toys. And that was, I think there was, how many floors did we go on? We went on three floors. Yeah, three floors. Three floors. You know how, like, sometimes, like, you know, you're thinking, oh, this place is going to be like Willy Wonka. Then you get there and it's like a sterile office building or something. Like, that was not DC. Like, this office had personality. There was, like, everyone, like, had their cubicle decked out, toy, like, lots and lots of toys and, like, posters and stuff like that. Um, that was really cool. And um, I want to and, – and there was, you know, statues of, like, stuff like giant Funko Pops. We posed with, like, Green Lantern rings. And um, uh, it could almost be considered not just, like, still in my birthday celebration, but also, like, to honor 10 years of BTO. Like, Stella got to go to where it all happened, you know, uh, DC Comics. And, and before I talk about that closet at the end, any, like, you know, comments you want to make about, like, the DC offices or stuff that we saw in the offices? It was there was just a moment where I I think in, in the smack middle of our tour where there was the first hit second day where I was like I don't think I've ever actually thought I'd be here but I was and it was it was very I felt very blessed being there. I would just say I enjoyed seeing their cubicles and how they personalized them with different statues or posters or images. It was just it's like the best place to work almost. Just you have total freedom of of what you put up there. Yeah. And, and I want to thank, you know, uh, Tim, who's um, one of my editors who, uh, you know, took the time out to give us that tour. That was really nice. And uh, the really cool part was and if you're friends with us on social media, you might have seen this at the end of the tour. They took us to this like closet and they like unlocked the closet and it was like a big with book. me and you'll be oh, in a world of pure imagination. Oh, gosh. A big bookshelf of like omnibuses you know deluxe editions trade paperbacks like hardcover soft covers just like thousands of dollars worth of books and we were told help yourself take what you can carry <laughs> and that was like something else like and and we all have like weight limits on our you know um checked bags did, did we actually go to the gym ever to like weigh our stuff or did we just uh, do it at the airport i don't remember someone did i, I did not yeah, I weighed mine at the airport, but like we had like pounds and pounds of like like uh, enough that like I had to like take some of the books out of my check bag so so that way I wouldn't get like a carry on fee and I was like holding them to the airport. Like we had like big on um, and this is what and this was like the day after, you know, um Joe gave Stella those two Batgirl Bronze Age on the bisses and like Donovan that nightfall one. So like we were just like getting swag and swag and swag like throughout this trip. But that was uh <laughs> That was a moment right there, like that I knit that my inner twelve year old like would have fainted had had this happened to me. Um, just open the closet, take what you can carry. I will say that if you guys have been listening for ten years, hopefully you can guess which of the three of us had the most self control. 
<laughs> Show off. <laughs> I, was, I started cackling, I think. Well, I probably wasn't cackling, but I was laughing on the way out because they're struggling. Josh's pants are falling down and I just have two <laughs> I just have two uh hardcovers of stuff. So I thought that was pretty hilarious. I put them on my bed when I got back to my apartment and like the bed started like the mattress started like caving in. They were so heavy. It was like 60 pounds of like books because some of them were on the buses. Before Friday, um, I just want to mention the um, the final DC office that we went to was uh, DC has a talk show. If you're subscribed to DC Universe called DC Daily. So uh, we also went there. It's worth noting. And we got to like, po- you know, see uh, the costumes for uh, a movie starring a character whose name we don't like to mention on this show. But uh, uh, it was directed by Todd Phillips. And, you know, there was some cool stuff there. We posed in like a. <laughs> crime alley scene and stuff like that um you know i I don't have too much to say about bc daily and it was funny because like joe kept on apologizing like i'm sorry that this place isn't like you know doesn't have a lot to it i was like no this is awesome this is awesome and then that night we went to a live taping of the connors because um i was interested in seeing like kind of um a sitcom taping or like any warner brothers television show taping and um Connors was interesting. It was um, John Goodman. And uh, if you see this episode, I think they said it'll air in January or February. See if you can um, listen very closely for Donovan and mine laugh. Stella did laugh, but not at what was going on in the show. She laughed because in between like takes um, like, you know, in between like John Goodman, like, you know, making jokes about like his football team losing. We were like talking to each other and we were I don't even remember how this came up, but we were teasing Don about like the days that he threw pizzas on the roof and Don said, I haven't thrown a pizza in over three years. No, I said, I have not delivered pizza in three years. (laughs) And Stella and me started laughing and like, we were laughing at him so much that like Donovan, like he said, we're switching seats. We're switching seats. You two aren't sitting together. We're switching seats. It was like the parent trying to break up the noisy kids. Cackling like goblins. I never knew why. (laughs) Well, first it was because, like, someone was like standing up and cheering, and their stomach was like bare and like ready to like dig <laughs> into. Yeah, right by Donovan's head. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's uh, I don't even. It was like what was the name of the episode? They said it was something called like throwing a Christian to the lion or something like that. Oh yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, so to the uh, bears because the Chicago Bears. Oh yeah, 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 and. Uh, <laughs> Th- that that was interesting because I always wondered how like that live studio audience thing worked because I was like, there's multiple sets. What do they do? Do they move the audience? Do they move the sets or like and, um, you know, they, they do a lot to try and keep people from being bored. Like they brought out sandwiches at the halfway point and um, in between scenes, they have this kind of guy who's in the audience to like energize the crowd and like play games with them. And uh, he did a really good job, I thought. And yeah, so then we move on to Saturday. Saturday was uh, Universal, I believe. Yes. Yep. Oh, yeah, you ran into your ex. Shut up. (laughs) That was two years ago. We, we took the we took the uh, Universal tour, which was which was fun. Um, it was ramping up. I love how Don tells this story about the tour. Uh, have I told it before? I mean, like it's just it's just fun. The, how the, like, the, the way that you tell the story about the cliffhanger of the tour, yeah, yeah, because it's like you know, uh, <laughs> the kind of ramp the the tour involved like uh, created dangers from famous movies like the Jaws and Psycho and uh, various others. 
And it was ramping up near the end for this, this climactic finale with The Rock as Hobbs from yes. Fast and Furious. And um, uh, Tyrese Gibson and Michelle Rodriguez, from also from Fast and Furious, as like Roman and Lenny. And so like they're building for this huge finale. And they like holograms show up and you see like these like party girls dancing until the FBI agent shoots them away. And I'm rubbing my hands like this is going to be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't wait. And then like there's nothing going on. And like the person's like, oh, I'm sorry. We have to stop. You know, so, just some technical issues. But I, I had my fill. I thought that was hilarious. And um, that was a new wrinkle in Re- Universal. Which was, this is like the second time I've been to Universal. The first time was two years ago in Florida. But um, I, I enjoyed myself. I kind of stayed away from the, the roller coasters. But uh, I still had a fun time. We went through this uh, zombie thing, which uh, Stella said before the trip. What if there's a symbiote moment? And um, we never wound up going in the pool for Stella's symbiote moment. But I think it happened during the um, Walking Dead uh, walkthrough. Yes. Uh, yes, I attached myself to Josh. That's what the symbiote moment is. Shove me in front of both of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you ran in front. Well, first. first, those strangers told us to go first, and I don't like that. But, hey, we had to do it. Yeah, and then that, oh, I remember going to the sock store and got some special socks. And that night is when we had our dinner for other people who were in, in L.A., and we got to have Harold on that this show yes. doesn't know about and uh from questions they don't ever have answers and uh, jason who has been on this show a couple times hey harry has been on he um you yelled at him during your uh anniversary intro last year yes you're right you're right and then we come to sunday which was the climax of the weekend i would say because we hiked up to the hollywood sign and what a hike it was. It was glorious. I love it this. Was, it was rough at times. We did get offered a hit of a uh, of ganja. We all passed. <laughs> Don't worry. But I think in that moment I thought, wow, this is really what California is like, isn't it? They were a lovely couple. I thought they were a lot of fun. They, they, they were nice. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We all made it. Uh, yeah, it was about four, four and a half miles or so total up and down. And it was just, yeah, great to be out there. And that's why I like to do get the blood pumping and, you know, that kind of thing. Some of us are in shape. Some of us aren't. You could probably, if you've seen our pictures on Facebook, guess who uh, struggled and who didn't. Well, we <laughs> left no man I was behind us. saying, you know, at some point I'm going to stop and you never did. That is true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> it was worth it for that view on the top but like oh boy that was a, a very very sobering experience to find out what my physical limitations are and um something that would be of interest to the back row the oracle audience is like kind of as a warm-up to the hike um at the bottom of the trail where the hollywood sign is there's like i guess it was like it's kind of like a 10 minute like short hike to um the bat cave entrance from the 1966 adam west batman series right. which uh we posed in front of there sure did and then after that, we went, we did have some food, and then we went in search of some stars. And I was trying to do it quickly because I knew these guys were tired and it was getting dark. And then at one point, Josh decided to wait in the car, which was fine. But then Don and I said, Don. Josh was out of gas. <laughs> I said, Don, we need to run to get these stars, which I literally meant run. So we were at the 6300 block. We ran all the way to 69, stopping along the way, dashing through crowds of people around the Chinese theater and coming around. I mean, we saw a woman yelling on the phone, calling someone 
saying some bad words and the stranger telling us welcome to LA. Yeah. And <laughs> you remember that? Totally it awesome. was it was hijinks, man, just running and taking pictures of stuff. But I'm very happy that I got got my Gone with the Wind people, got Judy Garland, Doris Day, got all classic vintage people. It was a lot of fun. And we also went to a giant Funko store, which probably would give Gerard some heart palpitations but overall yeah that was a fun night and then we capped it off watching frozen 2 electric the boogaloo. theater electric boogaloo yeah i'm not sure who the boogaloo now with is more colonization than ever <laughs> i i enjoyed it. i i remember watching reviews on my phone as i was heading to the, the airport and people were really kind of like eh, over the film I, I thought it was fine but I, I thought the first one was was good too so i have no horse in the race of which is better yeah and then we all went home on our various trips. I actually saw a colleague at Dulles. It was kind of scary. I'm number one. I'm grateful that I flew out on Monday because I was told that Tuesday LAX was a nightmare and getting to it was a nightmare. So I'm glad that I flew out on Monday. But when I got to Dulles, it was 8 p.m. and it was dead. And I thought, what is this? What's happening? So I guess fly out on Monday or Monday before Thanksgiving is the way to go. But then I just walked and there my terminal was one of my colleagues. So that was kind of fun to have the last leg with her. But overall, yeah. That was a lot of fun. I'm glad that I did it. Glad to see the Gilmore Girls. I'm grateful for the people that led us around. It's, it was, yeah, and you too, of course, for for going along. Yeah, I mean, and on the subject of Gilmore Girls, like, Joe really was the MVP because when he find out that, like, you went all this way for Gilmore Girls and you couldn't go to the gazebo, he literally, like, walked us onto the set of Lucifer because they were, like, filming Lucifer there and, like, was, like, Here's your gazebo. Have at it. <laughs> how, yeah. And how took your, so many pictures. Yeah. How was your for us back home, Stella? Because mine was turbulent as hell. Oh, it. My flight to LA was actually rather turbulent. I think mainly because of the Chicago situation, but the flight back was not as bad. So maybe I just. Where did you? Did you? Ha- was it a one stop or zero stops? We were just. It was a lot of dipping in like uh, a lot of like there's one point where like we just drop for two seconds and everyone's yelped and <laughs> oh, I just like, no. grabbed onto the lunch tray like like for the rest of the hour it was awful <laughs> oh my gosh wait did you have a layover somewhere did you go to another airport before you went to Nashville no no it was a straight flight was, oh okay did to stop down in Phoenix because the wind was so bad but they never did oh yeah so wow, I, I just okay. I just sweated out for three hours and <laughs> I, I had a very Gosh. turbulent flight and i've mentioned i don't know if i've ever mentioned on this show i fly all the time but i am terrified of flying because i saw final destination when i was in like ninth grade and ever since then like airplanes have scared me but like we live in the world that we live in so like i have to go on them like at least like you know a few times a year and every time i do i'm scared so like this plane was like shaking and i was like giving myself mathematical scenarios in my head like statistically speaking i am safer up here than i am on the road i am safer like <laughs> but it's like your brain knows that but your like emotions are like i am going to die <laughs> well luckily we all made i guess my turbulence was just on the way there and not on the way back well thank you thank you for sharing your fun moments and la was certainly it was a lot of a lot of great fun 
we're here now, of course. We always do some sort of – I think each time we've we've not done like a regular arc. And I gave them the option. I said we can do a regular Birds of Prey arc or we can do maybe something controversial and that's Huntress Cry, cry for Blood. <laughs> and uh, they both wanted to do that because, of course, I've been in my own – well, I have people with me. Tom's with me. Carolyn's with me. But, of course, I, I take a different stance on Huntress, so it should be interesting going into this. And I did warn them, there are always rules with this, with these two jokers, that we do have to come in objectively. So don't go in already hating Huntress or thinking she's wrong. So we don't hate her. Story. Okay. Looking at this story holistically. So this – it was a six-issue miniseries. ran from June 2000 to November 2000. The synopses have been gathered from DC Wikia, so thank you. And the gentleman will be reading the synopses, and then we shall talk about this particular story. So I think, Don, did you have the first three or the last three? I couldn't recall. I took the first three. Okay. Uh, so the creators for all six parts are the same. Writer Greg Rucka, artist Rick Burchett, and colorist Tajana Woods or Tajana Woods. So Don, you're up for parts one, two, and three. Okay, part one. Batman is at the scene as the police recovers the dead body of Claudio Panessa out of the Gotham River. Crossbow bolts are sticking out of his chest and this makes Huntress an immediate suspect. Another connection is the fact that Panessa is the cousin of Helena Bertinelli. Therefore, Batman breaks into Helena's apartment and confronts her directly. She denies having anything to do with the murder as the tension between Batman and her continues to grow. She's still angry that Batman never accepted her into his quote-unquote family. After Batman has left, Helena thinks about this, her about the history of her family. Her great-grandfather, Giuseppe Bertinelli, came from Sicily to Gotham City about a century ago and established his mafia family, which ruled Gotham with four other families, Galante, Casamento, Baretti, and Enzarello. Tomasa Panessa wanted his family to become the sixth member, but Alfredo Bertinelli, Giuseppe's successor and Helena's grandfather, rejected him. And that did not change even after his son, Franco Bertinelli, married Tomasa's little sister, Maria. Franco eventually succeeded Alfredo as the boss of bosses and became father of Pino and Helena. When Helena was eight years old, both of her parents and brother were killed right before her eyes. The Panessas took care of Helena and sent her to Sicily. The Galantes took over the lead of the families, and the Panessas were allowed to join the group. Helena did not learn about her mafia heritage before she was 15 years old. In the evening, Helena decides to visit her family to offer condolences. Members of mafia families of all over are present at the Panessa estate, and Helena overhears that they are also talking about the Huntress. Pasquale Galante Jr., the current boss of bosses, and most others are happy to see Helena. Only her cousin, Monica Panessa, does not accept her as part of the family. Driving home, she nearly runs over a faceless man who is standing on the road and seems to be waiting for her. Dun, dun, dun. Part two. <laughs> Huntress knows a faceless guy waiting for her on the road as the question. The man implies that Helena is still struggling with her double identity. Next day at work, Helena thinks about her potentially being exposed as the Huntress by Batman. Both the Mafia as well as the GCPD would come after her immediately. At the same time, Nightwing is with Oracle, and they talk about Helena being guilty of murdering Claudio Panessa or not. Oracle dislikes Huntress and thinks she's guilty, but to her dismay, Nightwing disagrees. He leaves and visits Helena at her apartment, offering his help, but she angrily refuses because she has not forgotten how she was treated by the Batman family during No Man's Land. After Dick neither Lee, have I, Huntress. Neither have I. <laughs> it's, they're, they're bringing it up. I'm not bringing it up. They're bringing it up. <laughs> 
after Dick leaves, Helena suits up and is in search for the female reporter Karen Fraser, who recently wrote a negative article about her uh, as a huntress. Helena suspects that Fraser got paid by the mob of Gotham City, but she finds mm-hmm. the reporter dead in her apartment uh, with crossbows in her chest, and she flees the scene just as the police arrive. Uh, she runs right into Batman and Nightwing. Batman wants her to come with him, her to come with him, as the police is already on the scene. Huntress misunderstands his intentions and tries to flee, but when Batman throws something at Huntress, mistakenly fires her, she mistakenly fires her crossbow. The bolt is about to hit Nightwing, but Batman shoves him out of the way and gets hit himself. Furious, Nightwing attacks Huntress. Now Batman reacts. becomes Rick Grayson instead. <laughs> he loses his memory. Nightwing attacks Huntress, who reacts by jumping off the roof into the near, nearby river. The question fishes her out of the water, but when she also refuses help, he knocks her out. Part three. Helena wakes up in a cabin in Canada. A man named Richard Dragon tells her that the question brought her there. Question calls Dragon Sensei and introduces himself as Vic Sage. After a week, uh, she's vanished. Robin visits Oracle to talk about the murder cases involving Huntress. Robin thinks Helena is innocent and wants to find out the truth. Both him and Oracle dig deep into the past of Helena. After her parents and brother were killed, all other Bertinelli's were eliminated as well. Vic explains to Helena that Richard is a kind is a kind of teacher who shows how to who shows people how to live. He warns her not to go back to Gotham where her injuries uh, when her injuries are healed because she will probably die within a few days. Then Vic leaves so that Helena can be taught by his, by her new, new sensei. The training over the following weeks is both mental and physical so that Helena better understands who she really is. After three months. Vic returns because it's now time for her to return to Gotham. As they are waiting at bus station, Vic wants to know how Helena became the Huntress. And that's just what he finds out in part four. So while traveling back to Gotham City by bus, Helena Bertinelli explains to Vic Sage the events that took place after her parents and her brother had been killed. As the other Bertinellis got wiped out as well. Oh man, all these Italian names. All right, let's see how I do. Which is funny because I'm part Italian. Tommaso... Vanessa, sure, decided to bring Helena to Sicily so that his nephew, Sal Acero, could take care of her. As a young girl, Helena did not understand anything about the family business, but she observed how the Aceros trained themselves in gun shooting and in hand-to-hand combat. Um, it doesn't say in this recap, but they also said, you must never go in the barn. It is forbidden. Because Helena was continually having a scary nightmare, Sal decided to train her so that Helena felt she could defend herself. That was how she first learned how to use that crossbow. So one day, the Aceros and the other mafia members were arrested. So Helena was sent to a boarding school in Switzerland. There, she found out that her family consisted only of criminals. At the age of 16, she returned to Gotham City to spend some time with her uncle Tommaso and the rest of the family during a Christmas holiday. But the event was disturbed by none other than Batman. This set an example for Helena that one could fight crime, and the Huntress was born. So in the present day, Helena Vick finally arrived at her apartment in Gotham City. But who is there? Spoiler, it's Batman. So, Which leads us into part five. Uh, after three months, Huntress is back in her apartment in Gotham City, accompanied by question. Uh, Batman's like, where were you? So he is he, he waits her in her apartment and tries to ease the tension, which is usually which usually is between them. He knows she did not intend to shoot him with the crossbow. Well, yeah, she was aiming for Nightwing. No, I'm just joking. And that the murder accusations on her are wrong as well. Batman offers to give her enough room to clear her name as long as she does not clash with the GCPD. Shortly after Batman is gone, Robin shows up and interrupts a romantic moment between Helena and Vec. 
Robin tells her that he reviewed Helena's history together with Oracle and hands all the files to her. After that, Robin swings on the roof of the building where Batman and Nightwing are waiting for him. Dick is eager to talk to Huntress. Like, no, dude, she's got another guy in there. But Batman wants her to figure out everything on her own. Meanwhile, Helena tells Vic what she did after she had witnessed Batman for the first time. She went to the University of Palermo? Sure. Mm-hmm. And studied anything that was mafia related. Yeah, she, I remember like it said like like she like majored in mafia or something like that. Until <laughs> I remember the book saying that until eventually returned to Gotham City. The killer of her parents is already dead, but Helena still cannot answer the question uh, why she was spared. While Helena looks at all the files Robin gave her, Vic goes outside to take care of a man who is obviously observing the apartment. Vic finds out he works for Santo Casamento. This suddenly makes sense because Helena just looked at the picture, which was taken by the FBI, and shows her mother together with <gasps> Cosimento. Helena puts on her costume and asks Cosimento straight on what his relationship with her mother was. And he points out the obvious. He's Helena's father, which leads us... Because that's her father on her, too. Um, part six. Helena has confronted Santo Casamento regarding an old photo, showing him together with Helena's mother, Maria. Casamento claims he's Helena's father. Uh, by the way, like he he's also like, oh, and I know that Helena Bertinelli is the huntress. Uh, the, the recap doesn't explicitly state that. But like, yeah, he like he knows who she is. According to him, Maria was treated badly by her husband, Franco, and thus she found comfort in him. When the Sicilian mafia boss Stefano Mandragora sure, ordered him to wipe out the Bertinelli, Santo passed on the order, but with the condition to, quote-unquote, spare the sister. Now, he meant to spare Tommaso's sister, Maria, but the assassin misunderstood and spared the little sister, which was Helena. So this fueled Santo's hate for Helena, and by trying to frame her, he actually wants her to use her abilities for his criminal business. So later, Hunter stands on the roof thinking about these revelations. She's approached by Nightwing, who confirms what Cosimento told Helena uh, because Batman ran a DNA test. Creepy. Backed into a corner, Helena decides to accept the invitation to the wedding of her female cousin, Monica, and she will be accompanied by Vic Sage. Helena takes advantage of a Sicilian tradition and asks a favor from her uncle, Tommaso Panessa. We don't know what the favor is yet, but we find out later on. Over the next few days, Helena not only busts up her new brother, Mario, oh, uh, but also makes Santo Casamento take his place to make a deal. But in a warehouse at the pier, it's Tommaso Pen- Panessa awaiting Santo. He kills him in retribution for the death of his sister. Helena calls the police so that Tommaso gets arrested. The question is still more than unhappy that Hunter Scott Santo killed, although she did not do it herself directly. And um, uh, the recap doesn't say, but he kind of like walks off in disgust. And Helena, she takes off like pieces of her uniform and her rosary and she like throws it into the river, implying, could this be the end of the Huntress? Who knows? But it is the end of the recap. <laughs> Very true. Well, before we start getting into the questions, what's your history with this particular story? Ooh, mine's very quick because I've read it before. I remember reading it at Borders. Um, It was collected back then. I've not read this in a very long time. The only thing I knew was that, like, it involved, you know, Helena was the main character. It involved her background. I remember the question being in it. And that was really, I think I maybe remembered Richard Dragon. I know I've read this before. But it was only once a long time ago, so this was basically me reading it for the first time again. Yeah, I had one of those moments where I realized just how old I was because I was like, oh, I remember reading the first issue or two of this new on the stands. 
And I was like, so yeah, I read this. And then I did the math 19 years ago. <laughs> oh, that's a long time. <laughs> but but like, I could clearly remember being like, I guess I would have been, you know, a teenager. And um, this was, you know, months after No Man's Land had ended. And one thing about No Man's Land is like, that was kind of a redemption story for the Huntress. So I was like, okay, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. In terms of history, I don't know if this part is better for like later discussion but i was actually like very upset at part one because of uh there's like a continuity detail it's not necessarily a continuity i mean i'll just say it now instead of like later but like batman goes into helena's apartment and he like clearly knows her identity where um it doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere if you look at other books because there's like a justice league secret files issue before this where like he leaves a note in her apartment and like he sees her without her mask. Not that her mask hides a lot in no man's land. Yeah. No man's land. Right. But like, this was like directly, like he knows who she is and he's making reference to like her. And I was like, we never saw this moment because like previously it had been like Nightwing and Robin knew who she was. And that was the secret that they kept from Batman. And they even like talk about that Nightwing issue 25. Like, so you know her real name too. Like, yep. But Batman doesn't, that's our little secret. So it it's not out of bounds that he would figure it out. But I remember like at the time as a teenager reading this book, that's like my clear memory of like reading issue one is like, how does Batman know who Huntress is all of a sudden? And Huntress later found out Batman's identity off panel in a similar way years later. <laughs> Quid pro quo. <laughs> oh, my um, God. <laughs> the uh, yeah, this is actually this is my history. This is the first time I've reading it. I had heard of the title before. Someone even recently asked if I was going to cover it. And I thought, yes, but how strange that you're asking if I'm going to cover it because, you know, it's a Huntress story. Oracle only appears in, what, two issues? Certain, I mean, I won't reveal yet what my grade is, but it was certainly interesting. And here it is on Backroll Oracle for its 10th anniversary. Well, I do want to talk about the covers and art, first of all, before mm. we get into many questions and points that I want to cover. So the covers, well, I very much enjoy them. They all have, I would say, the same format, uh, Batman Huntress, of course, and they all have a particular question or quote or a lead-in right on the left and then just really interesting things so the first one you've got helena her hands are bloody batman's behind her you've got batman in number two bloodied he's got holding the crossbow questions behind her in three and she's training a little girl that almost looks like cassandra kane from afar yeah holding a crossbow in number four huntress and question with little itty bitty people in their hands and then of course at the very end you're wondering about what the state of her soul is because in number six she's she's standing over a dead body so yeah what are your thoughts on just this cover set that they have for these six issues i was i really liked them i remember i remember these covers I specifically remember like the first three covers, but like, uh, yeah, you point out uh, part four, which looks like a kind of a, a small cascade with a, with a crossbow. Now I know that's Helena, but I, I really—that's my favorite one. Like, I love that that time. Of course, it is. Well, it's, it's not the like Cassandra Kane thing. It's, it's like once there was a little girl who learned to hate, and like, this is this small girl with like knee-high socks, so she looks like she's—I don't know. There's an implication that she's like either you know from a certain school or she's not American or whatever, and she's holding this this crossbow that's far too big for her. And the bat signal is like right under her on the floor. I was like, that is so cool. 
So I mean, some of the covers are, you know, like like people fighting and stuff. But like uh, that cover, the cover to three, where she's like kicking down like the wooden dummy with, with the question in the background. The cover to two, where Batman's like against the kind of the, the roof thing, where he's he's shot with a crossbow. Like th- these are these are really cool. I, I really I really like. I'm glad you asked this question because I can like genuinely say I, I really love these. These these are very dynamic covers and um and they're not like other covers that were on the stand at the time because like it kind of has its own um dress for the miniseries and its own uh little stylistic choices across you know all the covers um and I love um, I'm gonna try and pull it up right now I love Helena's face and um the cover for issue one because like her face and Batman's face like he's like well talk your way out of this one Huntress there's blood on your head <laughs> so like <laughs> that made me laugh when I was looking at it but yeah no I, I love these covers and then the interior art what are your thoughts on the art by Rich Burchett yeah Rich Burchett yeah. I'm, only, I'm mainly familiar with his like Batman adventure stuff he did um I like the first several issues of Batman Gotham Adventures. I think he even did like the Dan Slott Batman Adventures stuff. So, and he did that issue in No Man's Land where Batman and Gordon talked at Gordon's house. So, I it's interesting for me because I'm I'm usually seeing his work adapting the animated stuff because it kind of has it's not very cartoony here, but it's it's also kind of stylized a little bit. Like it's it's very realistically rendered, but there are times where people kind of bug out and they kind of have funny funny looks on their faces. I like this artwork. It's it's. It's kind of natural. I never say this is kind of around the time of, of the Batman books where a lot of the artwork had everyone look kind of more natural. They're, they're not overly muscular. They're not overtly sexualized. Like, I mean, I think Helena looks like a normal person in this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so do like, like Batman and Nightwing. Like, they don't look like they're like, you know, uber jacked either. Like, it's actually kind of interesting because like there's that newspaper clipping of like an artist. <gasps> yes. The Huntress, yeah, the artist. the artist rendering. Yeah, exactly. And she has like you know, it's it's almost like a uh, a Rob Liefeld like X Men in the nineties. Like she has like these these big like, oh, yeah. <laughs> when she's got like the double guns on like that news report. Like the Huntress is considered armed and dangerous, yeah, and sexy, really mu- yeah, muscular and all kind of stuff. And like it's a good contrast to how she's depicted here, where it's, it's like I mean, I didn't notice a single instance of cheesecake in this, which I think honestly was common around, around this era, like the Joey Legit edited era batman comics so um, so i i uh i really enjoyed the artwork especially where like whenever we saw the question you know and like, i thought he was illustrated very well whenever vic stage was under the mask yeah i, I like i like the art in this um i'm not very good about talking about reasons why i like the art but um i thought the flashbacks were you know nice and stuff uh, the way that they were drawn and um i like i like the expressive look on people's faces like there's a few times where helena like kind of gives batman like a please look like in like that first issue uh when he's at her apartment that uh i liked i mean that, that's that's part of the course yeah yeah but i mean it was it was drawn like very expressively like she, she looks more like sly instead of like like uh, instead of like angry or like some, or, or something like that i feel like it the art really fits the the tone of the story, it has a noir feel to it. It also fits, I think, the aspect, the Italian aspect uh, and the roots of that family. Um, the flashbacks, I think, are, are done really well where it changes a little bit. has a, a, a sepia, sepia, sepia tone. Sepia tone, yeah. Yeah, and it, there's a bit of a Tim Sale feel to it. Like if I opened this up and, and I didn't know, I could be like, oh, is it Batman Long Halloween? You know, there's a mm-hmm. bit of that. But I, I think it's really beautiful and I think it really matches the subject matter within and the the culture as well. So I think that it's 
really great. It's probably one of my favorite things that I've read that I didn't know I was going to read. I agree with you about like the, the, the non-Halloween connection because when she started listing off like all the mafia members, I was literally thinking, I've read this before in Long Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, when like someone's name was Alfredo, I was like, another Alfredo mafia guy? Okay. Of course. Well, th- since we are talking of, of course, stories, we've got narrators. And our narrator for this whole story with the exception of maybe some changes, is, of course, Huntress. So what is your thought of using Huntress as a first-person narrator, not having maybe a third-person narrator narrating this story? Can you trust her as much? What What are your thoughts? Uh, you, uh, I've not listened to every episode of uh, a Required Reading, but I, when it, uh, there I've, I've listened to some episodes where you ask, well, can we trust the, the, the narrator? I was like, huh. Uh, you know, it's her story. You know, it says Batman Huntress to sell it, but like it says Huntress's story. We, we've joked a lot, a lot about like – this has been on for a few years now about like the whole Huntress as a character and, you know, what Batman thinks of her, that kind of thing. But I really I, – I, I've always liked the character. I really liked her in this, especially with how, how the first couple pages opened up with like, you know, they all think they know me. None of them know a damn thing. They think they know what I want, why I do what I do, but they don't. They've never have. They've never even tried to figure it out. <laughs> That's in the trailer for Rise of Skywalker because like Adam Driver walks out, but I do. <laughs> in the rain. I, I don't know. I, I think that like Greg Rucka, he's a writer that clearly likes strong women. He's written, um, you know, he wrote Gotham Essential, uh, Renan right Montoya. He's written Wonder Woman. So he takes these female characters seriously. He, he's not trying to like, you know, do anything but do that and i think for a character who is in the world of batman a controversial figure in terms of like you know like, like like what the characters think of her i thought um her voice checked out because she was you know clever and, and insightful and you know she had a lot of like uh, pathos with her past but she's still i don't want to say hot-headed but she's still aggressive and that's something that i think is important for this version of Helena Bertinelli is that like she's not somebody who's very passive. And I think that he kept that intact without her coming down as some sort of like, you know, negative female stereotype or somebody who was unintelligent. Uh, so I thought I thought um, because he wrote it well, she was a great choice for a, a first person narrator. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's her series. So I would want her to be in the narrator, especially because um, we would lose a lot if like someone else was narrating this because there's so much revelations for her that like we'd really want to get in her head first. So like, if this was like uh, the question narrating it, like we wouldn't know how she was like taking all this news about her family and everything. I think she's a reliable narrator because comics very, very rarely do the whole unreliable narrator thing. Like that's done once or twice, but it's kind of like the exception to the rules. So Helena really has no reason to like lie in her own head. The only time where it's like, where I think you would wonder if you can trust her is when she's narrating, like, the opinions of other people she's like oh batman thinks this of me or nightwing thinks this of me like etc like but that's her opinion so like you know even then like she's not being unreliable she's speaking to her experience if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and oh there 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 was another part of that question i'm trying to remember but oh there there was one part and this remind me of uh bruce wayne murder fugitive which happened like a year or two later where like there was parts in Bruce Wayne Murder Fugitive where, like, Batman never denies killing Vesper. And, like, there was something similar in this where, like, the internal dialogue, like, it took until, like, I think issue two until Honda says, oh, I didn't kill that guy, by the way. But, like, the narration was, like, really vague for the first part. She's like, someone's dead. And they have an arrow in them. And people are saying it's the Huntress. And I'm like, but it isn't. 
say, but it isn't. <laughs> and like she and, and maybe she did. And I just missed it the way I was like reading it. Because, you know, how sometimes like your brain will like autocomplete like certain sentences or like skim something. But like when I, I don't have any memory of her denying that in the first issue. Um, not it's, that I. Yeah, that's actually my next question. So. Okay. Okay. I okay. So, I won't skip ahead there. Okay. So, so that wasn't, uh, okay. Got it. Well, then let, let's go ahead to the next question then. Okay. Well, I'll just say as Neri, even though Donovan criticized me, apparently, um, oh. it is, it's a legitimate question to ask if the narrators are reliable, especially in terms of memoir. Persepolis, that was a legitimate question because it's a child narrator, so I will defend myself on that. So asking if it's, you know, she's a rebel narrator, I think it makes sense. I think uh, it is good to have her as a narrator in this because it is, in fact, her story, and she gets emotional, and she's real about the things that she went through during No Man's Land and her feelings towards Batman. I think that's really the first time you get to see that because you don't see that too much during No Man's Land, so I appreciated that. Huntress, do her rebel blade. Is Batman wrong for accusing Huntress or is Huntress wrong for not answering the question? And in fact, she she never answers the question, but she tells Nightwing right away she didn't do it. So that's what happens there in that first issue. So is Batman wrong for accusing Huntress or do you think Huntress is wrong for not answering the question? Does he ever accuse her? Yeah. Jesse says that you you killed this guy, and I'm going to stop. Well, it's more one of those implied things. Yeah, it. it, it Did it, you it was kill kind of him? Accusing. I mean, the fact that he's asking the question, right? If there were trust inherently built up in that relationship, he would already be on the defense. Like, let's find out who did this. But he's asking her. Oh, don't make me disagree with you, <laughs> please. I don't want to. Uh, uh, do you? Well. I, th- I think that's a pretty – that's a distinct difference. Don't you? He doesn't offer help that, hey, someone's trying to frame you. He says, did you kill him? No, yeah. He he, he definitely is asking her and he definitely thinks that like it's it's not impossible or likely that she did. I think accusing her is like literally pointing his finger and saying, you did it. You killed him and I'm going to arrest you. Um, he never says that and he, he, he he's suspicious of her but I think he, he's a very kind of like Batman thing where he's like, you know – you know, just just tell me this, and they, but he also like leaves. He's, he says, you know, if I find out you did this, I'm going to take you down. But he leaves. He doesn't fight her. He doesn't I'm, fight her until like uh, she's she's escaping the second the second murder victim. I don't know. I'm looking at that same like I, I have the book open right now, and he says, "Where were you tonight?" And then um, he like holds up the air. One of these was buried, you know, in his heart. And then when she's like, "I was in the shower," he's like, "Your hair is wet," which is like, true. <laughs> what? Okay, but like. In the context of the conversation, he is saying, like, yeah, I, I'm looking at every panel. She says, I didn't do it to him, but, like, she doesn't say it in her narration. And he says, um, you don't seem surprised. Like, everything he's saying is, like, not an interrogation, but, like, it's very, very, like, challenging to her. Like, you know, like, your hair is wet. You know, where were you tonight? You don't seem surprised. You know, like, I mean, OK, yeah, he, that is all true. And like, is that is that necessarily like something that like he shouldn't be doing? Really, <laughs> they, they established throughout this entire miniseries that she's has a history of like brutal violence. And I I have a question about her later on that I honestly don't know. But like, this is kind of like the, the 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 runaround we do with this with this this relationship is that like to what extent is should he like not be investigating this? There's investigating though, and like she makes a good point at one point where she says. Um, uh, the line she says is, if this was Nightwing, like if someone like showed up with like a Nightwing like battering like in his chest, like he she never believed that Dick would do it. And at one point I was like, yeah, she's right. But then I thought for a second. But on the other hand, too, like 
him and Dick have a different level of trust. So I kind of go back and forth on it. And and I was thinking about this as I read it. I think that both of them mishandled the, this is going to sound like such a cop up, but I think that there's a little bit of blame on like both sides and the way that both of them handled like the interaction in these scenes. I think that, you know, Batman breaking into the, like, it, again, like, she's like, at least Nightwing asked before he came in and stuff like that. I mean, because at mm-hmm. this point, they have been on the JLA together, and yep. No Man's Land was a year-long story, and, like, one of the central plot points of that year-long story was, like, kind of, like, Huntress's redemption, and, like, you know, Huntress finally getting that, like, stamp of approval of Batman at the end, like, you did good work, Huntress, so... It's disappointing to me, and it was disappointing at the time when I read this in 2000, and it's disappointing to me now that, like, after all that and after all that character development, we're kind of, like, back to this, like, you know, like, hmm, were you the one that did this? And, again, like, she's been on the JLA, like, would, would he do this to Plastic Man? Like, although, granted, Plastic Man doesn't have that history divine, so I can see Batman's side of this, but I would also say that both of them mishandled the conversation. I think that's a good point. And I think, is, is that what you were kind of going off with, Stella? Because I don't want to just agree with Josh and disagree with you because I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, this is, I asked if you guys wanted to do this controversial story. So, I mean, you better get used to disagreeing with me. Well, I, I don't seek out to do it. But, like, um, to me, it's like, okay, yeah, this is this. I like, thought this no, would be more fun. <laughs> Batman and Huntress by numbers. It, but, like, um, I don't want to get into this whole, like, you know, what would, what in the world was he thinking? Accusing her of murder. It's, it's like, really? Is this really surprising? But I mean, I I I, take, I do take the point that like their relationship should be different after No Man's Land and after like those JLA stories. I will concede that like this isn't like 1996. You know, a lot of stuff has happened between them, so it feels a little negligent of Greg Rucka to kind of like write it like write it as this. I will say though, but when I was reading it, I it, I didn't register a blip for me. But if you're bringing all that into the, into the forefront, then I was gonna see, okay, yeah, maybe 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 he should finally at last give her a break. So I, you know, he, I, I he came into that apartment with a bad attitude. I mean, he uh, yeah, he was ready to go. And the fact that he, you know, later on in whatever part it was for, I suppose, is telling her that he knows she didn't do it and is giving her leeway. I don't know when that sort of switch happened. Like, did another killing have to happen? And then he realized it must not have been her. But all, it would almost be the opposite because she had fled. That seems suspect. So now all of a sudden he's on her side. So I think there's an inconsistency with his character in this particular story. And I think in the in the continuity of the, the universe as a whole. I think that's owed, probably owed to Nightwing and Robin believing her. And then like, you know, there's three months have passed. So I, I, I imagine they kind of wore him down. Yeah. And then just kind of like when every <laughs> – not to get, you know, too controversial and allude to other things, but there's like moments where like, you know, you could be in a situation with someone and like you're feeling very, very charged in a particular moment like Batman is. And then like after a blow up, like, you know, someone shooting someone with an arrow, you kind of like when everyone gets a chance to calm down, he might have like looked at it from a different perspective. Like, OK, yeah, she did kind of like, you know, save all those babies in no man's land and stuff like that. Yeah, so <laughs> which they reference in this. Um Cause, cause, yeah, you know, she you know, she says something like, like I thought this, the okay, Joker okay. from committing infesticide, and I was like, oh, man. Infestis- infanticide. <laughs> Whatever, yeah. He's like... going to destroy a bunch of cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't let him do it. I value all life. <laughs> Sarah Essen got shot in the face for a cockroach. Okay, so I guess we disagree about that particular thing, which, you know, it's, it's going to happen. 
if we could move on to part two, and of course we can go back and everything, but just these questions that I have. So I did want to talk about the Huntress and Nightwing conversation yes. that they have in part two in the apartment. And she right away confesses she did not do it before you ask. I, I didn't do it and he didn't think she did. But then the accusations, I mean, she, she gets kind of hot. You know, would that be anything like the help I got during No Man's Land when he wants to offer help to her? Mm-hmm. And she goes on and talks about Pettit and Joker and Quinn. When Batman manipulated me, is that the kind of help you mean? And he said that's not fair and they get really, really close and angry. Maybe there's a, a potential romantic moment right there with that tension. And then he says he's not my boss and it's silent and he ends up. Uh, potential romantic uh, moment like he after their fight he's like mm, this dinner smells good you dining alone and she's like get the f- out of my apartment well i mean there's that one panel i mean they're very close i mean often you know it's a trope i suppose but you know you see people get really heated and in an argument and all of a sudden then it like devolves into sex so i feel like that one panel where their heads are close in the red background. There's that instant where I think they remember that chemistry that they may have had, but they also know that's wrong because that's he, been brought He invites but himself just, to stay for dinner. Are you disagreeing with me? I can't tell what that point is. Oh, I'm, I'm agreeing with you and I'm adding on that. Oh, like, oh, oh okay. okay. He, he like invites himself to dinner. It's like really inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, well, I know she thinks it was a mistake and he had in his own title said that it was a mistake to get together too. And he's with Barbara kind of at this point. So it's just interesting. <laughs> okay. But what are your thoughts just on that co- whole conversation, uh, her really letting go and, and letting loose with all of the stuff that happened during No Man's Land? I think that in this story, Dick clearly cares for Helena and kind of more so you're okay and i think he may still have some some residual feelings for her but it's, it's not really fully fleshed out like he's not like you know oh i'm in love with her but he's just like you know i i can't help but like worry about her uh in this story i don't think helena really respects nightwing or or ever has and i think that like you know she tolerates him more than batman i think she like you know tolerates robin the best um like she knows she can actually talk back to nightwing in, in a way where it's you know that actually lands some punches and so when he kind of snaps back, like, you know, he, he, he doesn't want to get it too much into, into her. And near the end, when he's like, oh, you're dying alone. He's just, he's just trying to be, like, kind of, like, comforting to her and, like, maybe a little flirty. And she's like, uh-uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a go-nowhere zone. So I think, I think it's well-written. I think there's, there's a number of emotions kind of, like, kind of coming in and out of the scene. And I think that, like, uh, I, rem- I know in Dixon's Nightwing title, he's very much kind of, like, face-palming, like, oh, that you know, I hooked up with uh, with Huntress once. I don't want to think about it. Like it, it depends on who's writing. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I was Devin Grayson who wrote the miniseries, and Duck Dixon doesn't, you know, go too much to it. But like, uh, in this one, I think he's a little bit more positive in his opinion of her. And I think in Nightwing, she's a lot more flirty to him. I think she teases him more. Where in this one, because she, because she's dealing with like you know her own like you know name on the line, she's like uh, whatever, just you know. But, you're you're in my way kind of thing. She seems so like the black cat in the Nightwing title. She's like, hello, lover, and like kissing him in like front of Barbara. Yeah, that kind of crap. Like, like I, I think in this one, like, like he wants to let her know that he cares for her. And he wants to help. And she's like, that's not even entering my mind right now. I like the conversation, even though like I think both parties, you know, like make mistakes during it. Kind of like uh, the Batman one, because that is good writing where if you could like write a conversation where there's no good guy and bad guy and like 
everyone's kind of like flawed and and it's like emotionally charged. It's interesting. And it's been a while since I've read these books kind of like as they were coming out. So like Stella might have a different perspective because she's covering it for BTO. But like you have to look at this as like what's Dick's relationship with Babs right now? Because they like kiss at the end of No Man's Land, you know, but then he kisses Helena and then like it's like okay are they a couple or not and like the first few months after no man's land which is like around the time when this is it really goes back and forth because like babs is still kind of like seeing ted cord ish and then dick is like kissing clancy but then he's also like with barbara so like i guess it's like him and barbara are just they're together but they're not like full-on like exclusive yet they're still exploring options so Dick's not necessarily like cheating on Barbara when he like invites himself to stay at the Helena's, but like <laughs> I really thought that that moment was inappropriate. He's like, mm, dinner smells good. And he looks at the t- you dining alone, like, and yeah, she says, see yourself out, which she has every right to say after he like comes in like the way that he did, even though he was more appropriate than Batman did. And I like Huntress unloading on him for No Man's Land because you know, um, ultimately, and and. <laughs> To, to bring up another old argument, I do think that there was instances in No Man's Land where Huntress was in the wrong. But I would also say that, like, she was manipulated by the Batman family and they never really had like a postmortem on that. And she's like, yeah, you guys like left me to deal with Pettit and stuff. And I'm like distinctly remembering like those scenes where like Pettit's like ready to like kill everyone in his camp. And like Robin and Batman are like looking at binoculars like, oh, man, Huntress is sure in trouble. <laughs> he's like oh well robin radio radio me if anyone dies like <laughs> well but nightwing was also in those stories where, where they're interacting with hunters like batman nightwing and hunters he like, kind of come off as like batman's lapdog like more than he ever really should like like he's kind of like like the, the overt bad guy and this, this happens in this one like the overt good guy to batman's bad cop he's like hunters listen he just wants to help and batman just you know just like grabs her by the wrist and stuff which is probably why he says he's not my boss. I think there's a bit of a defensiveness in that. Mm, yeah. I, I like this. I like this discussion. I like seeing Helena like this. Uh, she's tried to ingratiate herself so much with this Batman family. And, uh, you know, at times it might fit, but a lot of times it just doesn't. And so I appreciate a lot of it that she's going to figure this out on her own. And she's on her own and she's fine with that. And she doesn't want this outside pressure. And it just reminds her of that bad stuff in No Man's Land. And yes, you know, she may have made mistakes in No Man's Land, but I like her throwing that all out there of like, this is all that stuff that happened to me. So you can also see, I think, the damage that No Man's Land has wrought on her because, of course, we focus on other people like what happened to Barbara or Cassandra or Batman. But, you know, it really took a psychological toll. So you do have to have some empathy and compassion, I think, for Huntress in what she went through, even if she did make mistakes. So I do appreciate that. But it gets – yeah, it's an interesting – arc of the conversation how it gets really high and then it drops down and then she's like you just need to get out of there so i'm glad there wasn't like a weak moment of sex or something like that oh my god greg is a better writer than that yes well who knows he's definitely thirsty for her in this series because he's like at one point he's like to batman i think i should go over there like go away dick That is true. Do you think later on ba- Nightwing overreacts to Batman getting shot? Uh, big time. And that's not, you know, like, you know, you can't hit a girl exactly. But, like, look at, like, the transition. He's like, you know, we just want to help. But, like, he's not being violent to her at all. And then, like, when he sees Batman's, like, in moral danger, he snaps. And 
I don't know if I've ever seen Dick Grayson react that way to like Batman being hurt. Like, I was kind of like, gosh, really? I was, I was kind of like trying to put in my head, like, okay, I guess, you know, in that instance, he thought that Huntress, you know, there may be a chance that like she's as bad as people say she is and he feels like he feels foolish or whatever. I'm trying, I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around that. That's, and that's a possibility, I think. But that was a lot. It was a little weird seeing like, you know, Dick be that violent. When Batman said, you know, stop her, you know, yeah, he can, he can like fight her, but like he, he, he went kind of overboard and like, um, it's not the fact that like, you know, you can't punch hunters because, you know, they fought before. It's just that like, he seemed, he seemed a lot more vicious than, than I, than I've seen Dick usually get in that instance. So that was a little weird. The, the, the panel where it says, no, let me go. Like the panel where it says, no, his face, he's like, Grr, and like, her hand is like up, like stop, please, and like her face is bloodied. It's a very uncomfortable panel. She has a battering stuck in her arm, wrist. <laughs> yeah, it's just it <laughs> escalated so quickly, <laughs> and it's clear that it, uh, you know how much of an accident it was. I mean, even her face shows instant remorse, whereas you know might you might expect hunters to be like, well, you deserved it, but it wasn't there. And then just that <laughs> Nightwing goes after. I thought, oh my gosh, what's happening here? You can even tell that like uh, when she lands, it went off by accident. And actually, I, I actually really like how. Nightwing dodged. I thought that was kind of like cool, you know, kind of decreased acrobatics, but like it was clearly an accident. And even Batman's like, I didn't see this coming. (laughs) In fairness, I'm looking at the fight. Like she shoots an arrow at him first and he like dodges it, but like had he not dodged it, like it would have hit him. Like it eventually did. So like she says, just distract him. I think she knew that like he could dodge that one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But anyway, like so he throws his batterings at her and that makes her fall to the ground and then it shoots him. So technically it's Batman's fault. But I, I, I if we're point scoring here, then sure, why not? Well, because like he he knocks her over, and by him knocking her over, that's how the arrow goes into him. Mm-hmm. And, 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 he says later on, you know, like I I knew it was an accident. <laughs> he better have like anyone that was on that roof should have known it was an accident. Especially that being said, that conversation I talked about mishandled conversations in this arc. Like that was a really mishandled conversation uh, on their end. Like they were very very much like okay, like, you're coming with me. And at that point, like, even if you think she did it, he has shown more restraint, like, dealing with, like, people like Catwoman. He'd be like, Selena. Like, when he thought that uh, Selena... I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I would not uh, say Oh, I think so. Still go to the Golden Age. <laughs> like, I think of modern, modern I age... I don't even have to go to the Golden Age. I'll go to Tom King, like, wow, Selena, you know, like, you really, like... Like, when Selena took the blame for, like, those Holly Robinson murders, it's like, wow, Selena, you murdered hundreds of people... I guess I got to turn you in, but first. <laughs> okay, wow, interesting. Uh, several characters comment on Huntress's sanity, so I realize <laughs> this could be opening a can of worms. But do you think? Do you think that she is sane? I mean, this is what I'm always like referring back to. It's like it's not just Batman being mean. It's like like this is like been the Bat Family status quo all throughout the decade of the '90s that Huntress is a potentially unstable vigilante who doesn't abide by the set of ethics that everyone else does. And Oracle is right there with them. Like, like, like Oracle has to be kind of talked by Dick and Tim, you know, maybe she didn't do it. So I'm always like, that's why I'm always kind of perplexed as to why this, this sort of like, why there's, there's, there's in this conversation, why is it that Huntress is like, you know, being like underestimated in a way that's unfair because that was, that was in, in terms of like, you know, I guess like the fan conversation, do I think she's sane? 
I mean, as, as much as a vigilante is in, in DC Comics, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that she's like, she's never come across as particularly like ruthless or what have you. But she is somebody who was raised in a violent world, separate from the others, where you understand why she is the way she is. So I don't think she's insane, but I do see and understand and recognize that she's a much. I would say she's probably darker of a character than than uh, than Batman is. And I think that like that carries throughout her means, you know, stabbing people and and I mean, I, I, I want to ask a question later on, but I don't know, I don't know if this is not the right time in terms of like her past as to like you know what exactly her like lethal skills have taken her to. Um, I think she's sane, as sane as like Tim Drake, Dick Grayson, and like Barbara Gordon are. Like she's more violent than them, but I don't think that violence equals insanity. It just equals like morality, like. She seems to have a grip on sanity, I would think. I mean, and I'm not the best person to diagnose insanity or not. Um, and in, in terms of people commenting on her sanity, it can – I know Stella said it's like a hot button issue, but I guess if we're going there, it, it's almost like a comment on like, you know, feminism and stuff where like, you well, know, if a, yeah. Yeah, like if a man does this, you know, like – it's not, you know, he's like, you know, a hardcore person. But if a woman does it, like she's unhinged and she's out of control. I'm trying to figure out how to say this without bringing like a very, very charged name in here. But there are certain women in our like society who are powerful women who people accuse of being power hungry. And people just repeat over and over again. Oh, this woman just wants power. They just want power. They just want. And it's like repeated so many times that it's accepted as a fact. But then like, if you ask, well, can you look at some quotes of hers where she says she wants power? And like, there's no quotes like that. In fact, like she's turned down like chances to have more power, but it's one of those things that if it's repeated enough, it just becomes about her. And I had that epiphany about Huntress earlier where it's like, it's almost like that with her where like everyone's, everyone just repeats Huntress's reckless so many times that it just becomes a fact what is she doing that's like different from what Batman's doing aside from like she uses arrows and he uses batarangs like she's extreme she's like violent but like I guess Batman's violent too but like we're told that Huntress is more violent but we're not like well, I mean we've seen some instances of that and I think I think yeah. there have been inconsistencies because you know there'll be like Legends of the Dark Knight stories where Batman's pretty violent but like, there'll be like you know Chuck Dixon stories where like he's never like maims anybody the difference is that, like, I mean, I, I, there's a there's a price story where a huntress like let a guy burn to death while Oracle was screaming for her not to do that. Like, <laughs> I don't know why no one bringing the brings that up. <laughs> um, you, you do have a point there, but yeah, a lot of times it's just like we're told huntress is like reckless, and we're told it enough times that it's like a stated fact without it like being shown too like, many times. It, are you? We well, saw it in like Robin Three, you know, Cry the Huntress, where like. But I haven't read Robin, that in years. We saw it in that spoiler story where Huntress was there. Like, well, then that's another thing too. Like Arthur Brown's like, she's gonna kill your old man. It's like, is she though? Like, what, what did she do in that spoiler story again? Like, that was so bad. Like, I'm I'm trying to remember it, and it could be something really obvious. It's like, oh yeah, never mind. But like, yeah, I think that like I think that this is this is, is it's a good conversation to have. Like, I th- I do think in terms of consistency. She can't be written like Batman and people are like, well, she's a woman. So like that's that's a no goes on. Like, you know, she's crazy. I think that's absolutely true. At the same time, there have been instances where we've seen her actuate the, the fears of, of all of the other characters. Like like she has. I don't know if she's actually killed anybody. And that's and at this point, I got to refer back to well, the original Joe Staten series from like 1989, um, which was much darker. And I know that she's let people die, which a bad family don't like doing. So like. 
I think it's it's it, if you're going to say that, like you know, she's she's no different than any of them. That's that's not true. But I do I I would agree. But the that, differences like, are like so small and minor. I mean, I think it depends on the circumstance. I think I think that like letting somebody die is, is a big enough deal where like that's that's and, that we've seen people get kicked out. And, and yeah. Batman's on like the JLA with like people that have done like the same or worse, such as Oliver Queen. Oliver was <laughs> well, was he? I guess that was later on. Yeah, he, he he he's like tortured people with his he arrows. Was, well, I think, I think I, I, honestly Oliver's dead at this point. <laughs> I mean, it didn't. Did, <laughs> And, and that was that was later on in his career when he wasn't. I mean, and and to open a big can of worms, which like we're not we're not going to really get into, but that time, but just to like as an example to answer your question, like did Superman not like take a bunch of Phantom Zone criminals in a room and execute them? Well, that, you you read that story where like he tells Bruce that after Jason Todd dies and and Bruce like kicks him out of the of the house. Like I mean, that was later addressed, yeah, but, but like, he doesn't say I'm bringing you in, and then like get like Nightwing to like like Nightwing like goes to Clark's house. Like, <laughs> anyone so else the <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny because um I was looking at TV tropes um and I, I sent this image to Don earlier. Like uh, I thought this was a really funny observation about the Huntress, which actually it kind of goes against my the point that I was making, but it was like a funny quote. Um, TV tropes. Um, I'm going to read this quote. It says, "In Arrow, Helena Bertinelli is a recurring villain. Of course, this required only small changes to her basic character." And I was like, "Oh, shots fired!" To kind of put a fine point on it, I I think it's both things. I think that you kind of wonder why they had this character in the in the beginning because you know she's ultimately a good guy you know she's a bit more violent but you know she has her she's she's, she's a very interesting character and she she runs up against the bat family you, you i think that you to to really make it easier to understand why batman and the others don't accept her is to, would be to have her be like a, a consistent killer at the same time though it does annoy me when people act like like she's not she's like you know an innocent newborn baby like oh no she, she's never done anything like you know we've never seen like yes we have um, but I will I will agree that at the same time it's inconsistent and I think that like the sexism implicit in a woman doing the things that a man does not 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 being accepted is one hundred percent in play uh throughout her history. And I I really wish Carolyn Coca was here to like, you know, set us all straight, but uh we'll have to do our best without her. Jason Todd is actually a good example. The uh yeah, I would say that she's sane as well. I think Obviously, she has a similar origin, if you think about it, with Bruce Wayne, that she was witness to her family getting murdered. Oh, yeah. And she ends up, I mean, the trauma, she just goes a different path than he goes, right? So it may have been a bit more violent than he went. I will say, at least on her behalf, that at least in her side life, she's a teacher and she's loving on those kids, whereas he's... Not doing much. Wait, what? He's She's doing what to the kids? Loving on those kids. Loving the kids. Okay, yeah. yeah. That is a kind of funny panel where, like, they, they clearly have a crush on her because she's like this, like... Yeah, I know. Yeah, sure. Versus, you know, him being a billionaire playboy. So I've got it bad, got it bad, got it bad. have to. I mean, like, okay, Stella, because this is your anniversary show. Like, what is your opinion of the Huntress precisely? How, how, how does the Huntress compare to Batgirl? Well, I would say that they're uh, quite different. If I were to, how does it compare? It's like an apple and an orangutan. 
They both are vigilantes and they both strive for justice. I think to a certain extent, they also both, so I'm doing the comparisons of my Venn diagram, they both are looking for acceptance to a certain extent, but I think they also both don't need it and they can stand on their own. Where they split is, of course, the origin story. There's no tragic past with Barbara. I think she overall has a more positive attitude. I think she looks for the hope in others and she is similar to Batman in wanting to redeem characters and I think she looks for those uh, positive aspects in people. But with Huntress, I think it's people aren't as redeemable and so she's willing to um, potentially put them down, though I've not, you know, I've not witnessed it. Except in Birds of Prey, I will agree that that has, in fact, happened. Yeah, it did. I mean, like, what, what do you think about Oracle generally not liking her? Do you think that, like, do you... Yeah, so this is, I mean, it certainly was one of my questions, yes, because she has that conversation with Nightwing where she's upset. I, I think there is some jealousy there as well. I'm, I'm sure she knows of their romantic past. So I think there's jealousy there. But also it's interesting how she is recapping Helena's tragic past. But the way that it's written, the tone, how I read it is it's almost lacking compassion and it's almost just stating facts, quite mechanical. And if, if there were any time for Barbara to soften, that would be the moment. I mean, she doesn't necessarily have to like her, but to at least show empathy and be with her at that moment. So I was, I was quite surprised with, with Barbara not uh, doing that. I, I think that was a, a character misstep or, you know, I could just be like, shame on you, Barbara. That's not the way we handle things in empathy world. Do I think that she has the right to not like her? I think there are several reasons why she doesn't like her. I, she doesn't like her methods. I do think she thinks she's a bit violent for other people's tastes, but I'm trying to think of what Barbara thought of like Jason Todd when he was going over the edge, that kind of thing. She was really there so for you that. have to yeah, like yeah. She was, yeah, so there's much, not much to say about that. I think again, there's jealousy. I think with the dick thing, it really hurt. You can't you can't put it past her the fact that Huntress was in her Batgirl costume. I think that was a huge misstep uh, on her and Batman's part, and so that's like something that I think will will take a while to get over. But I, you know, there might be a bit of a shade of. Batman in Barbara. I don't know if this is like a mischaracterization or it makes sense that that's happened and that maybe she doesn't give Huntress as much a benefit of doubt. And that's just the way the writers went with it because right off the bat, she doesn't trust Huntress the first time they meet in, you know, Black Canary is like, who are you talking to? Oh, Hunter, don't talk to her. So, uh, <laughs> you know, right off the bat. So, I, you know, where does that come? I don't necessarily know. It might have been some brainwashing. I'll say brainwashing <laughs> of Batman. But so I kind of see why she doesn't like her. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them build a relationship as I continue in Birds of Prey and seeing her soften and again i will say that i think she should have shown some empathy as she's going she's just stating these facts very dryly you know all these people died i thought yikes show some empathy do you know who uh introduced um helena and dick to each other um what barbara yeah it, it was technically barbara there's like an early 90s like birds of prey issue I guess it's I'm I'm trying or not on wait, 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 early nineties birds of prey. That's yeah, yeah, no. I meant so I meant to one say of the one shots that I've covered. Yeah, no, it, it, this is before that. It wasn't Birds of Prey. It's it was Black Canary's solo title. I called it Birds of Prey because like the members of the Birds of Prey were in there like separately. I don't remember the exact plot details, but like I think like Black Canary's like kidnapped or something's going on and like 
Huntress is like being sent to get Huntress is like on a mission together. And she's like, well, I'm like kind of the outcast of the bat family. So like, I want the other bat family outcast to like help me. So like she requests Oracle to put her in touch. And this is like back when Oracle was just like a computer screen, like, and you, you see Babs, like I I'm trying to remember how Huntress even got in touch with Oracle, but like, you know, she requested her to put her in touch with Nightwing. And she's like, Oh, he recently left the Titans. Cause this was during that whole, like, starfire wedding fiasco where like there was that coup it's a coup it's a coup quid pro quo where nightwing was like ousted from the titans by arsenal so like nightwing like <laughs> right in fact there's even like a funny part where like helena and dick are like undercover somewhere and like she's like are you married and dick's like it's very complicated <laughs> um but yeah barbara was the one that introduced them well okay let's move on to tim small role but and he's also a I might have to bleep this out, but a a bit of a <laughs> blocker. How you figure? Because of he just and you know I was thinking about this when the recap was going on. Isn't there one of those fan fiction stories that we have all read? That was also probably TVMA or whatever the rated R. <laughs> Where's this going? R. And it was it was Batgirl and Nightwing. And doesn't Tim pop in, or is it Batman? Who no, pops no, that was in Batman, but Tim did. Okay. them during a cataclysm yeah it's not surprising i guess that's his role but what do you think about his overall role in this particular story the fact that he is trying to help helena and it goes to oracle and gets her to do some some digging with him what do you think about how he i mean plays in it's been established for you know for all throughout comments in the last 10 years that like uh huntress has is on better tem- terms between Robin and Nightwing than she is with Oracle and Batman, and I like the fact that Greg Rucker is is bringing that in. You know, she's wanted for murder. Batman's like, ah, I'm, I'm gonna get you, and Oracle's like, she's she did it. And Nightwing and Tim are giving her the benefit of the doubt because Tim was alone in Nightfall because Jean Paul went crazy, and so he was he was fighting crime with um, Helena. He fought crime with her early in his career in Robin Three: Cry of the Huntress. So, I mean, he he's also kind of wary of her. But, like, he also, at the, at the same time, he kind of knows that she has a good heart. So, like, he feels almost insecure and, in like, kind of, like, you know, trusting her as much as he, he does. And I love when we first see him in, in the, the, the the clock tower, uh, Oracle's clock tower. He's like, you know, thanks for letting me stop by. And she's like, anytime, Tim. You know you're always welcome. So how's school? Because he's like, you know, after No Man's Land, his father was like, that's it. You're going to boarding school. So uh, she's asking about that. So that's that's. It, we're seeing a lot more development between him and Oracle than I was anticipating. I like. And when, once like, he says Huntress, her face turns like, get out. <laughs> salty looking face. But like, uh, no, but I, I like the fact that like, um, he's going to her because, you know, he doesn't need to talk to Dick about it, but he doesn't think he can probably talk to Batman about it. So I think he's used well. I, I mean, th- Robin shouldn't be all over this book, but I thought he was used appropriately. And, and I like the fact that Rucka knew about Huntress's various relationships in the Batman family to utilize them to the, to their maximum potential. And I like Tim and uh, Barbara kind of being the detectives together because that's their role. I'm, I'm wondering because, like, she calls him Tim and she references Bramwood. I'm like, was this before or after, like, he found out that she knew his identity or, like, is this a continuity mistake? Because at some point during the Brentwood saga, and I don't think it was, like, this soon, there's, like, an issue. Like, Batman, like, Robin and Alfred are, like, on their way, like, back to Brentwood from, like, a plane or something. And he's, like, being cagey with Oracle, like... You know, like, oh, yes, this random Brentwood student is very important to me. She's like, uh-huh. All right, I'll talk to you later, Tim. And she, like, hangs up. And Robin's like, oh, my God, Alfred, she knows my name. She knows my secret identity. And Alfred's like, well, duh, sir. 
<laughs> Duh, sir, is he Jeffrey from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air? I mean, it's I, I, if if you listen to Back Row the Oracle, you should know that. Like, I'm paraphrasing, and that you can't trust like one <laughs> word that I said. But like, you can't trust that narrator, right? Donovan? That's right. I, I'm the unreliable narrator. Yeah, my ex, um, indeed. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm like, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like she did like the whole like Barbara knows who Tim is, and Tim knows that she knows who he is, like. Did not come till later, but I, I don't have the issues in front of me. For all I know, this could have been the same month as that. In fact, because this is issue three, this would have been like towards the end of that first year of Brentwood. So, you know, maybe. And you could always say that this took place after. There's no like clear continuity spot. But, yeah, I like their little relationship here. And uh, as for, yeah, Robin the blocker, because he blocked Helena here and he blocked Dick and Babs and Cataclysm. So, I don't know. Lock your doors if Tim's around. <laughs> okay. The I, I like Tim. You know, Tim's not my favorite Robin. Everyone knows that, I think, that has been listening to this. But I will say that he's one of those people, and I had someone in my life in college, that this person seems to be able to be friends with everybody. And I think that's Tim. I mean, you know, I see Tim and Helena as they were they were teaming up during Cataclysm, I believe. And Tim, no, was it Contagion? Oh, they did, they did it before. It was con- yeah. Yeah. And then Tim would team up with uh, Jean-Paul, you know, so he is that one. And I think he has he gives her the benefit of the doubt, which I I think she needs. Certainly, you know, someone needs some she needs someone on her side. And so Tim is there. And I like that Tim is also unafraid to go to Oracle because he might know that she's a bit of a sour puss over Huntress and, and say, hey, we need to do this. And he might have been able to assuage some of her fears as well and or or doubts as to Huntress's innocence. So I, I do like Tim. I, I think he it's a small role, but it's a crucial role. And I'm glad that that he is there because I think Huntress does need someone in her. What is it in her corner? That's right. what it is. Well, let's talk about the cabin business. I did actually have a question, but it was answered a couple. I guess it was answered later, later on because as I was reading, I was thinking to myself, my gosh, she's been away for so long. Did you even hire a sub? Did you call in for work? <laughs> and then later on, she comes back to her apartment and she gets that notification that she's been fired because of all of her absences <laughs> from work. I was like, thank you for there being some realism in there. Tom and I have talked about Huntress for time, uh, sometimes as well, especially bruises, like coming into work the next day with bruises. Who knows? But so this is really interesting because we have a connection. We have a pretty intimate connection between Helena and Barbara now in the man of Richard Dragon. You mean, you mean, so what do you, you think about Richard Dragon? Yeah. Okay. He trained her as Oracle. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, wow, he just tried. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an example of a mansplaining babsplaining <laughs> right <what>? there. <laughs> Because he just tried to make it seem like I didn't know what I was talking about, and yet I do. So thank you on my 10th anniversary for trying to throw some shade on me. Okay. I had a bunch of people on my Facebook the other day say, you shouldn't say the word mansplaining. It's very, very mean, and it's against all men. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, I'm sorry. If the shoe fits, man, if the shoe fits. But anyways, what is your thought about Richard Dragon popping up in this book and his role and and the training sequences? Yeah, just talk about Richard Dragon. You know what? To be honest, I never thought about like, oh, he also trained uh, Barbara when she was. Uh, Oh, you're trying to explain it now? (laughs) 
What just happened? Is that what you're trying I mean, to do? I don't have to talk. He can just go to Josh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't care for it. I didn't hate it, but I was like, okay, like, this is kind of su- superfluous to, like, the rest of the story for me. And, like, I kind of like, you know, like, when you're reading something and you're, like, really engaged with it. And at other times when you're reading and you're just, like, reading to get to, like, the next page. Like, that was a reading to get to the next page part for me. I connect what I what I connected Richard Dragon was with was uh, the question series which I I read this year uh, by Daniel Neal and Dennis Cowan because uh, Vic Sage the question when he was like beaten to death by Lady Shiva she sent him to Richard Dragon to kind of basically do the same thing like kind of get his life together and kind of you know center himself so when I was seeing this it's like oh it's just, it's, it's it's this is playing out the same way where question is sending her to him and he's basically somebody who can help people. You know, kind of calm. You know, kind of find themselves, kind of you know, get balanced in their soul. I saw that because because there's a lot of question here, uh, and I kind of saw that as sort of like you know, an echo of what had come before. But yeah, it, it does, especially for this show, it does make a uh, better relation that um, the same thing happened to Barbara. You know, uh, however many years ago. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. It reminds me also in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles always goes to upstate New York at the farm oh, yeah. and have a little rest and relaxation, you know, that but <laughs> of all the, you know, people who really needs to to be out I think and, and center herself and maybe away from, you know, the the maybe violence but just like get with herself I I think was Huntress and for her to really heal uh, spiritually as well as physically. I enjoyed it. His character design was a little weird. I kind of didn't want him to be a balding man <laughs> but uh that's just me personally but i liked that you know vic i you know question just drops her off and here we go i it was kind of like a weird circumstance but i i enjoyed because it. you said that i'm now imagining helena at like richard dragon's little retreat and she lights a fire and then like a jim henson version of splinter like <laughs> my sons um, oh i'm sorry this is the wrong farm. I'm looking for four baby turtles. I've always, I always forget that, that happened. <laughs> oh dear. Very true. What is it about Vic Sage that makes Helena trust him and tell her story? And you can also talk about the shipping. Did you like that there was shipping between the two? I can provide some backstory, but I don't want to. I don't want to mansplain at all. So. Well, now you may because I don't have expertise in that. And because area. she asked you, the difference between mansplaining is like if someone asks you, then it's not mansplaining. Cool. Uh, this is this is what's great about the show. Uh, the teacher teaches the students. Yeah, no, like 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 uh, like I said, I read the question series, and he was kind of like you know somewhat similar. I mean, he wasn't like as like you know I I don't know if I would say he's just like Helena in like kind of her personality but he was somebody who kind of like you know thought with his fist and he wasn't very intelligent and that basically got him killed and when he trained with richard dragon and, and met lady shiva he became a lot more calm and and uh cool-headed and philosophical and kind of the version we see here now he's not as aggressive or or frightening as as he's kind of started out and he's much more zen about everything which kind of makes him a lot more of an interesting character and he says you know uh, I know this trajectory. I ran myself, not the same course, but similar. He references dying. Like so, like uh, having read that, I thought, you know, this. I, I I get this because I can see how he sees himself in her. The shipping. I remember. I remember the sort of relationship, like when I when I uh, when I first read this way back when, and of course this, they they did this a big time in um, 
Justice League Unlimited. <gasps> Justice League! Yeah, which apparently was a coincidence. Um, I was texting our friend Alex Jaff, and I asked him, because he's a big question fan, I asked him if he had any thoughts on this, and he said that when Gail Simone wrote that episode, she had no idea that they had like hooked up in this miniseries. It was like kismet. Oh, interesting. Because because I, I did know that they had some sort of like, like relationship in this, and uh, that's the only, that's the only way you could connect question the hunter. So that's funny that they, that's just a cosmic coincidence. But um, because he's definitely a few years older than her, like she's said to be like what twenty three in this, and he's not. Um, so like there was a little bit of like you know, gosh, this is reminding me of our, our last Kinoe episode about May December romances. But like you know, I don't, I'm I've I've taught myself out of caring about that. So I thought it was interesting, and it was almost it was somewhat tragic how their opposite natures kind of prevented them from like you know kind of like staying together and being happy so i thought i thought it was it, it was an, it was an interesting relationship that that didn't not make sense yeah I, I don't really have much thoughts on it um it was was a romance i mean i'm not going to do a shipper spotlight on it anytime soon but um you know helena helena deserves some love from a faceless man you know the question he he he's a hard-working vigilante um so it, it's nice that he gets a little nooky now and again <laughs> I yeah I I enjoyed it I'm glad it was a bit of a slow burn like kind of building up to it again the film noir feel it almost felt like the the private dick and the femme fatale you know something like that uh, double indemnity maybe so I I enjoyed it and it, per, it probably was doomed especially you know the end page I mean that really dooms it to the end but I, yeah, I just found it really interesting that, you know, he knocks her out. That's, well, first she only, almost runs over him and he goes off into the woods like a creeper and then he knocks her out and all this stuff. And then she opens up to him and she doesn't open up to many people. And so I, I, she always wears this figurative mask. And so I wondered what it was about him. And I think there are similarities between the two of them. And I think he's gone to that edge and he's worried for her to, that she doesn't go to that edge and, and can't find her way back. And so I, I think he is someone that struggles with his inner demons, whatever they may be. And, um, yeah, so I, I think she, she also, I, I, because he has no affiliation with the Batman family, I think that's also maybe a safer spot. Like, oh, there's not going to be as much judgment here necessarily. And so I can, I can really tell my story. But just to have someone also ask questions, I think is huge because, Asking questions implies that you care about someone in their story. And so I think the fact that he keeps prompting her, you know, throughout that entire bus trip, where she falls asleep, she wakes up, he asks her questions, they're waiting for the bus, asking questions. I think that's a really huge and powerful moment as well. And that's why she, she tells her story. So I think it's really well written in that. You might even say that he's a question. We don't have answers. Indeed. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so then we get to, I think, what was this issue four maybe or five issue five, I think Batman and Hunters talk again. And so what are your thoughts on this second, uh, I can call it a confrontation between Batman and Hunters, but it's certainly the tone is completely different that he's giving her the benefit of the doubt. He says, you're being framed. I'm going to give you space. Just don't do this. What are your thoughts on this this 180 potentially or a 90 maybe from Batman? <laughs> I want to hear what you think. Yes. Oh me, uh, this is this is the Batman that I like. I mean, you accuse me of not liking Batman, <laughs> and 
I, I don't like bat jerk Batman, but you know, when I see Batman like this who cares for the members of his family, whether they're completely in line with his ideals or not, that's the Batman I like. So the fact I, he should have been like this from the very beginning, in my opinion, I think he should have realized that it, it wasn't her, you know, especially when she said I didn't do it and to give her that space, but to also give her a firm line like this is do not break this rule. Right. And uh, so this is I really appreciated that. I thought it was honest. Uh, there weren't any screaming or yelling. I think he he gives her trust in that moment. So I thought that this was a great character moment, and I enjoyed it. I liked it. It's hard for me to look at it in a vacuum, though, because I can't look at this and think about it without thinking about how the comic, <laughs> no uh, the how the comic ends, uh, how how issue six ends. All right. So, so I so I I think I'm going to save more of my thoughts on that for when we talk about the end of issue six. But otherwise, like Batman's conduct in this is um is good. Like this should have been the conversation that they had in issue one. Like he's like, hey, someone like died, and it's pointing to you. Like you know, do you want my help on this? You know, otherwise, like all right, handle it. You know, but like just don't you know do anything bad. Um, I mean, well, if you can take the first conversation consideration, this is much more of a reconciliation, They're kind of a start over. I think the dialogue is really good, where she says, I didn't mean to shoot you. It was an accident. He says, I know. And she yeah, says, I don't look, this, look at his face, too, when he says, I know. Yeah, it's very conciliatory. And she puts her hand, her, her face in her hands and she says, I don't want to fight with you anymore. I didn't kill, kill Claudio and the reporter. And if you can't believe me, I don't know what to do to convince you. And he's like, you don't have to. I'm trying very hard to trust you. You don't make it easy, but neither do I. And she's like, no, you don't. She's like, let's try this again. And he says, you know, just, just don't mess with the police and we'll be good. And like, and then he turns the question, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Still looking for answers. It's not the answers that matter. It's the questions. And I, I, I like that. Like, I, <laughs> The question is, how long will it take before Robin knocks on this door and how far can I get? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I kind of see, I mean, it's because of, of how it's drawn. I kind of see like the, the new Batman Adventures Batman in this. Well, for whatever that that matters but like um i mean i again if if i take if i take like you know some recent interactions out of, out of context or out of, out of my mind i didn't necessarily mind the, the the last conversation they had but with that in mind with this i like the fact that like it's not a one track you know line there, there is development between here as shown and you know and trust being shown so i i too like it okay we're getting close to the end here i will say there was a funny vic moment where he says that he'll go see if the voyeur is still out there, checking, you know, watching, <laughs> observing her. And then the next scene is like he pops up right behind him. So there are some funny moments here, even though it is a pretty s- serious tale. And you know, Tim popping up, there are some funny moments. So then, yeah, let's let's get to the end here. Did you not want to talk about her her flashback or origin story? Oh, we certainly can. I mean, it's up to you. I, I'm not going to force it. No, you can bring it up. What would you like to talk about, just in general? I mean, all, all of issue like five, uh, four is like uh, you know her living with her cousin and you know not knowing the family business, then being trained. Her cousin and her uncle were assassins and all that kind of stuff. And like, it's interesting. Like, cause like you know they bring up Robin and Oracle talk about the fact that like she's she lost her family the same age that Bruce lost his parents, but her whole bloodline was eradicated, and she lived in this world of violence yeah. and. She trained young like him, although she's much younger. And then she saw Batman when she was young. It's interesting. I, mean, the, I think the only thing I want to bring up is the fact that, like, again, 
Like, Josh, have you read her Hunter series from like the late eighties, early nineties? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this I'm not a lot of it, but I've read enough. Yeah, this is a total retcon because like yeah, this is a retcon that like because because when they reestablish Hunt, the character Huntress that's not being Helena Wayne, like Catwoman, Batwoman's daughter, like she was like college age when her family died, and here Rucka's straight up redoing the origin where she's a kid, which I think I I I have always been more familiar with, so like I don't care. That was a much darker series. That, that implied that she was like molested as a child by like other gangsters and stuff. And like, I'm I I feel that she would have killed people in that series. I I just don't know. But like this one, this this the story is definitely reestablishing who Helen Bertinelli is as a character. I think it does a good job, but making her likable and and sympathetic, while still showing her this is how how she became violent. And I, th- I, th- I think it's interesting seeing that she trained since she was like I guess eleven. So, so like she's not some rookie who kind of goes out and shoots people with crossbows. She is somebody who knows martial arts and stuff. And I was thinking, gosh, I I, I must have forgotten about this because this is all kind of pretty cool. And I, I wanted to know what you thought about learning her origin in this way. Narratively, it makes more sense for her to be a child when it happens. Like narratively, like you know, it works better that way than her being a young adult. That being said, it's it's kind of tired that like every single superhero, it's because of like something that happened in their childhood. Like you know. Uh, it, like Batman and Helena were, you know, both eight. Um, even like when they tell Batwoman's origin, like, you know, Kate Kane was like a little girl when she was like kidnapped by like terrorists with her twin sister. Also, it's Cap- like, like, like she's always like an orphan or something. Yeah. As opposed to the golden age where she was like a flight attendant who like hit her head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> take that Batman returns. So yeah, it's, it's always like, you know, the thing that happened to you in your childhood, which Again, it makes for a more interesting story, but it's it's a cliche when it's like every single character. So I don't know what I prefer. I, I do love like uh, one of my favorite openings of like the Batman Adventures comic book is like I think it was like when it was the new adventures of Batman and Robin comic like the like that was in the animated series. Country. They did an issue that dealt with like the origin of the Huntress and the opening page is like you see like Helena Bertinelli as like a young adult and she's like hiding under the table, like, and she's like drawn like the Bruce Tim style and like everyone is dead around her. And she's like crying. She's like, what just happened? she showed up in justice league. Yeah. Yeah. This, this was like the Fox kids era. And yeah. In fact, I remember like she becomes Huntress in that story. And I remember thinking, Oh wow. I only ever knew of it happening when she was a kid. So like, I'm wondering if the kid retcon like, came before or if it's just something that i always assumed happened to her as a kid and then like later on i found out that it wasn't i don't know i personally liked this i thought it fit with the whole blood for blood theme that we were talking about in family and italian mafia and given that space to really delve into it because it was six issues you could take that whole issue out and have it narrated by her i haven't read that old miniseries because so i can't really say but i'll just say that felt like we fully fleshed her character out we got to see her grow there weren't you know sort of jesus christ leaps right where you have small child 33 27 year old man um so that that sort of thing i very much enjoyed and I, yeah again i i see i feel like as a reader you are unless you're stone cold hearted you know you should be forced to feel that empathy and compassion for her to see what she went through and also potentially respect her more as a, a character and as a as a fighter as a vigilante right okay uh, anything else before the uh, we talk about the ending let's go let's do it 
Okay. So, of course, uh, Josh alluded to what happens there, but she basically lets a murder happen. Vic pops up as question and says there's still time. And she says blood cries for blood, Vic, which was, of course, a theme for everything. Santos killed his sister. He asks, where does it end? When is it enough? Well, the gun goes off and she says now it's enough. And, of course, then she got rid of her, her uncle as well. And then... He does. He says, "Damn you!" And it's interesting that she says it happened a long time ago. And uh, a really big scene, you know, for me in particular, is just that she takes off also that crucifix that she always wears around her neck as huntress, and and drops it in there. So there's a lot of of stuff going on in that particular thing. Uh, so just yeah, your thoughts on the ending, on what happened, and I have like an overall question that sort of thinks about this whole story holistically, but the the fact that she went through so much, and it seemed like her character was changing, right, and then we kind of almost revert back to status quo Helena. What do do you think about this? I was a little confused in the beginning. I was like, wait, what happened? So I had to kind of like read it a bit, and then even read online. Okay, so she said, uh, the guy up to be to be murdered by by uh, her family member. So like I, I got it, but yeah, like and I, I think a lot of people kind of agree. I think I think where we're all heading emotionally is that like this feels like a complete. It's like all of this was kind of just to say the point that you know, ultimately Helena doesn't change, and she's somebody who will always kind of want vengeance. And you wonder like you know to what extent does like you know learning about her parentage and stuff affect that. Um, like, like, does that change her or does that set her back? Like, you know, will she be like this way forever? Like, did she, was this meant to be like the, fi- was this meant to be the final appearance of the Huntress? Which is like, I, I, I think about right now because like, I mean, I think her next appearance, I mean, unless it's in Birds of Prey, it wasn't Hush. Uh, so, I like, looked, she appeared in like a, oh, I, she appeared like a few times between this and Hush. Cause I looked at like a list to see like, oh, I wonder when she appears next. And like, I didn't read those books, but like it sounds like this was like ignored and like she was just Huntress again. It was probably the Batman Chronicles, which they tried doing again around this time. And, you know that, that brief like like series that kind of focused on the Bat family members. Um, I don't know if she appeared in um in um uh, Gotham Knights, which was which, which would have started around this time. I don't, I don't know. If she, at least up to this point, I don't, I don't know because like Hush was like the, my next immediate memory of her when she changed her costume. Yeah, which which you know I like. I I, I admit it's. It's a kind of tacky costume, but I do appreciate it. Probably the way Jim Lee drew it. Yeah, the the ending leaves. The ending is one that like you kind of want Greg Rucka to explain, and you wish it spoke better of her character than I think it does because it it basically kind of shows you that like you know, you know ultimately she you know it's, it's we feel I think the same way that that the question feels unless you two feel differently. She next appeared in Batman five ninety one, then Detective Comics seven hundred sixty three. Joker's Last Laugh 5, Robin Issue 95, Joker's Last Laugh, Gotham Knights. So it was like business as usual. There's like a few appearances. The Batman Family miniseries from the early 2000s and then Hush. Stella said something like she lets the murder happen. And it's like, I think that's very, very, very generous way of putting it. This wasn't letting a murder happen. She like... She basically put a hit on a guy. <laughs> yeah, she ar- she put the hit on. She arranged the murder. She like went to that wedding and's like, "I need you to do me a favor on this, the day of your daughter's wedding." And like whispered, like led the guy there. Said, "You should go into that room. You're not gonna get shot." I'm still digesting how I feel about this rereading this because like my first instinct is I don't like it as an ending because. We've had years of her being like, Batman, why don't you trust me? Why don't you just let me prove myself? And then, like, Batman's like, all right, 
I know you're not a killer. I'm going to let you handle this. Just don't commit any murders. I promise, Batman. Then she goes to like a wedding. She's like, I need you to whack a guy for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost as if Donovan was right the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally what happens. I don't want to say she like betrayed Batman's trust because like Batman's not like her dad in this continuity. Like he's not like she did betray him. He's not in charge of her. But yeah, like just this whole like. You're right. I'm I'm sorry for ever thinking that you were a killer huntress. I know you're not a killer, so you know, I trust you to finish this mission without killing anyone. And then Big Sage is like, What the hell? I sent you to the farm from Ninja Turtles and everything. We bonded over origins. Robin, you know, stopped us from hooking up again. And then you killed the guy anyway. And then she's like, It's what I do. And then she throws her costume in the water and like then the skyfall theme starts playing. I think this was probably meant to be the, her last appearance, and like editorial was like, "Eh, we can put her some, some a few more issues." Uh, I, I feel like this is like the pilot for like her next like thing or something. But she would never like work with anybody again if, if they found out about this. Like, um, I, I don't know if this is ever referenced again. I'm gonna look up Batman five ninety one on on DC Universe, which like that was another thing we were gifted at LA. Like <laughs> Joe, like uh, pulled out from his like you know uh, wallet, like here's a free membership for a year for you, a free membership a year for you, a free membership a year for you. While you're doing that, like like what did you think? About oh, this? Ed Brubaker wrote uh, her next appearance too. So oh okay, it made me sad. It made me sad. I maybe it was inevitable that that is what. <laughs> the character was going to do i mean blood for blood was repeated endlessly in this particular thing and it seems like uh she cannot get over that the betrayal of the family and and what had happened but to see her grow so much and almost find inner peace and then to have that happen it was just a tragic turn and so i i guess it, it questions nature versus nurture sort of situation like this is just is this just huntress's nature and she cannot be changed i don't know i mean this would have been the time to do it so it just makes me sad was it the wrong decision artistically or you know is it out of character i don't know i mean i think inevitably this is what was going to happen but it's it's sad and and to see that she's she walks away almost from the vigilante life it seems feels like maybe her faith has let her down or or perhaps she's not worthwhile to um be one of god's children uh for for whatever reason throwing the the crucifix there in in the water Uh, some really powerful moments but just quite tragic and sad and and almost just if this were you know her last story just seeing her alone (laughs) and i don't know what she would be doing on her own but I mean, I don't, I don't think that this is even even kind of out of her character. I think that, like, and it's also, you know, this guy knows who she is. He's threatening her. He's like, blackmailing her. So, like, you know, there's a lot that she's kind of getting rid of. It's, it's weird because, like, he was a bad guy, but he was also her father. But that doesn't really mean anything. Like, there's a few things going on here. And I still like her character. Right? This doesn't make me think that, like, oh, she's a bad person or whatever. It, it makes sense. But it does suggest that, like, you know, she's one of those, like, you know... You can't teach an old dog new tricks kind of things. Whereas, like, you know, she's there's a there's there's a nature in her that can't be altered no matter how spiritual she she might be become, which is a pretty dark thing to say and would suggest that like this would prevent her from ever working with the Bat family again. 
and yet we know that like that's not true, which which I think is a, is a editorial thing more than anything else. I just flipped through her next appearance, which was uh, Batman five ninety one, uh, which was not quite a year, but like you know, like six eight months after this, and she's in her hunter's costume, like fighting goons, and Batman goes up to her asking for like information about a mafia guy and she says i thought we weren't on speaking terms anymore and he says we are i guess maybe like you could imply from that that maybe he like you know froze her out again after he found out about this but anyway like the the, the rest of it is like exposition they're like fighting crooks is like she's like giving information about uh, lou moxon and then she says do you need any help by the way and then she like turns around and she's like he's gone and then she says big jerk which like i was like oh stella will like that this is this is just like you know batman and hunters by numbers with no interest right. in like what, what she went through in the story it is worth noting that she does not have her crucifix like visible in any of the panels in that story mm. she has in the next costume though right in the, in the hush costume so i'm looking at her next appearance after this issue now to see if uh i doubt it's going to be anything special oh my god this is drawn hideously she, she's drawn hideously in this as he's looking for this are there any other questions you want to tackle before i ask my last question yes or no okay so does this story change your opinion of her not even kind of <laughs> but okay my opinion of her is I, I like i've always liked huntress like she's always been like one of those batman characters like yeah it's a huntress you know like she's she's violent and she kind of rebels as batman but like nightwing and robin like her like, like i my siding with batman is not me saying that like you know i don't like the hunter's character or I, i've ever like disliked the hunter's character i just think that like i grew up reading stories where everyone said she is violent and uh you know she she doesn't she knows nothing of honor or living by the sword she is not of us and there would be stories where that, that would demonstrate that so and i think that like i would it would i would just get a little weirded out why people weren't apparently i guess people missed out on those stories but like uh this to me was like a good exploration of her past and what kind of drives her and even though the story kind of implies that like she can't change that doesn't mean that i don't like the character that she still is I guess it changes my opinion on her slightly because this is like killing someone. This isn't her killing like someone in the heat of a battle. This isn't her killing someone in like a fit of rage, you know, during like a charged moment. This isn't her killing someone to save a life. This is her arranging a hit on a guy like this is premeditated, cold blooded murder. But at the same time, too, like I'm not going to hold it super much against her because like it's mostly forgotten about. Uh, for what it's worth, in her appearance after the one I just looked at, she still doesn't have the crucifix, and she's fighting with uh, Sasha, which was like alongside her, which was like Bruce's bodyguard. And she like says this about Batman, which could be considered like a commentary on this, because Sasha's like, "Are you jealous?" And she says, "Hardly. I've tasted that apple, and I don't want a second bite." Take a word from someone who knows Biddy Bat. You're not special. You're just another one of his tools. He'll use you until you're broken or until you break one of his rules. Then he'll get you killed. We would be a little missing the forest for the trees to pretend that like every story is going to be 100 million percent consistent, and every writer has read everything, kind of kind of carry things over. Yeah. Uh, and I think that like hunters can be an inconsistently rendered character, like Batman's an inconsistently rendered character. So you kind of got to like take what you like and take what is the most consistent and kind of work with that. I feel that like people just didn't really read this story, kind of didn't really take that into consideration because I feel that like this story either implies that she's just like leaving Gotham. Or that she's not going to work with any of the Bat family again, which which a lot of what the story was about, and that it's ultimately ignored, and that sucks. But like, 
it's like this, you know, because this story goes, Rucker goes a long way towards working with her and, and it doesn't really pan out much. But um, nonetheless, you know, it was still an interesting story to read and, and I did dig it for what it was. Yeah, my opinion of it or her hasn't changed, but my understanding of her, I think, has deepened and uh, I have more empathy for the character as well and what she has gone through. So I have appreciated seeing this character journey, even if at the crucial moment she she reverted back. Well, now's the time when we give our rating. So out of 10 crucifixes, what would you give Cry for... Sorry, this took so long. <laughs> um, it's uh, Huntress. What do you expect? Out of 10 uh, crucifixes worn by Masato Kusanagi. Kusanagi? No, um, Katsuragi. I'm going to give it an 8.5. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. And I'm going to give it, I almost gave it a 10 out of 10, but I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't imagine how much I would actually like it. Once I started reading it a couple weeks ago, I really enjoyed it. The art, the story itself, getting a deep dive into her history, some really intense character moments and interactions. I just thought it, it's a it's a wonderful package. So I highly recommend it, especially if you're on the fence about Huntress or maybe you want to learn more about her character. Now let's never talk about her again. <laughs> I guess well, I mean, not with you anyways. Uh, there are no listener emails. I'm sh- shocked. I haven't had any for a couple unless they're in my spam and I haven't checked. I do have some spam, but none are from any fans. So no, no listener email. So we are going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to be reviewing the one and only Batgirl 93 or 41. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Graveyard by Halsey. Crazy when the thing you love the most is the detriment and let that sink in. You can think again when the hand you wanna hold is a weapon in nothing but skin. Oh, cause I keep digging myself down deeper. Followed all the way, no matter how far. I 
warning signs can feel like the butterflies. <gasps> oh, cause I keep digging myself down deeper. I won't stop till I get where you are. I keep running when both my feet hurt. I won't stop till I get where you are. Oh, when you go down all your darkest roads, I would have followed all the way to the graveyard. <laughs> Okay, welcome back for our final little push. We have Batgirl 41 or 93. It's Oracle Rising Part 5. Writer Cecil Castellucci, artist Carmine D. Gian Domenico, colorist the beautiful Jordi Belair. Batgirl falls from a height into the river below, seemingly unconscious and ready to drown. On the roof above, Shark and Fox suddenly, and I do mean suddenly, join Oracle and congratulate it on the success of killing Batgirl. Oracle is suspicious and knows you can't underestimate Batgirl. That's the first person who's not underestimated Batgirl. Meanwhile, Vulture is watching over Frankie and seems to be in full-on Stockholm Syndrome, finally realizing the price they must pay to be working with Oracle. Babs regains consciousness and is literally slash figuratively shedding Batgirl using a 15-minute rebreather to stay in the water for as long as possible. At the DC airport, but no specificity as to each which one. So clearly, Cecil Castellucci just had, has never flown out from there. <laughs> um, it's either Dulles or Reagan. Alejo needs convincing for some reason to go to Burnside, even though they didn't vote that for was her. Weird. So please see the Crown. Yeah, see, please see one of the episodes of The Crown season three for a similar situation and the queen apparently still regrets that decision to this day jason agrees to be the boots on the ground there since he just visited and immediately calls babs in burnside oracle tells operator that it is there to help gotham and burnside by extension i assume and sits on the chair mobilizing an army of tech i mean little robots and rabbits and things like that to be the eyes and ears of the town Back in the river, Babs's air has already run out, but she suddenly decides to swim to the surface and is found by a medic and a young Leslie Tompkins. She's put in an ambulance as a Jane Doe, just as Jason passes, but doesn't notice, just, you know, as those sorts of things work out. Oracle orders the trio to round up as many civilians as possible and put them in a warehouse, declaring that it will not abandon them as Batgirl did. Jason happens upon them rounding up said civilians and is knocked out and placed near Frankie. When he awakes, they have a short conversation about Jason's feelings for Babs. Then Oracle gives, which that's not the time for it. Then Oracle gives a monologue about Batgirl's failure and how Oracle will do better. Jason, who hates Batgirl now, offers his services and Oracle agrees, listening to his advice on how to attract people to her side. Oracle sees a news bulletin where Batgirl's costume has been found in the water and begins looking in hospitals for a Jane Doe. At Burnside Borough Hospital, Batgirl, or Babs, is attacked by a robot but fends it off before being calmed down by Leslie and receiving a costume from her as well. Apparently she had one on stock. Batgirl puts on some scrubs and gets out of the hospital as Oracle, the trio, and Jason arrive. Batgirl leaves a love note for Oracle, baiting it, and considers something that she would never do, rescue Jason Bard, which he was right there, so... She missed it. <laughs> Next, the race to save Burnside is on. 
Okay. Well, I don't know if you guys have been following along or not with this particular arc, so I guess we'll we'll just ask questions in regards to this. But before that, I always like to talk about the art now. That's something that I like to do. So did you have a particular favorite panel in this issue, panel or panels or pages? My favorite panel was when she kind of like washed up ashore and Leslie uh, was like saying like, you know, don't leave it just yet. We need you. And it kind of goes to black. I'm not usually a fan of like, you know, artists just copying pages, like Xeroxing the same panel. I kind of, I, I, they've been doing that a lot. I remember the first noticing that like around Flashpoint thinking this is mega lazy, but like I, I, I liked the combination of the repeat imagery <laughs> and the black panel kind of fading off. It was very like graphic designer majory. <laughs> so I, I kind of dug that. I like uh, the when you see her like struggling to get up to the surface and uh, I still have so much I want to do. Be a better hero, citizen, daughter, friend, partner, maybe a mother, dot, dot, dot. I, I, I like the way that that was drawn. Yeah, the, the underwater sequences, however strange they are narratively, were beautifully drawn. I also like the design of the cover and the acetate cover as well. And then I think it's page 16 where you have, I guess, Oracle fully formed and sort of Transformer or Megatron mode where she is relaying to everywhere and, and talking about her. She, she's got her monologue going on. So just a pretty cool design there. If you've been reading this particular arc, do you have any thoughts going into this issue? Like, what do you think about the Oracle as villain arc and also Batgirl coming back to Burnside? I kind of fell off on this title. I had to read the previous issue before this and see where we, how we got here. And I felt like we've not gone too much farther. It's, it's kind of a mix of emotions. I think that the writing's fine. I think the artwork's actually really good. Uh, conversely, I think that the art, I don't know if I would use this artwork for a Batgirl title. It's, it's good artwork, but like if it, I don't know, it feels, you know, a lot of the artwork is kind of distanced from the characters. There's not a lot of close-ups to kind of show emotion. It's, it's very, very kind of like, like kind of like a telescopic view. We're seeing a lot of things. Like, it feels like we're not close enough, and, and like the details don't really show a lot of like reaction and kind of behavior from the characters. The colors are a little almost too warm, even though we're always kind of at nighttime. And like this sort of like technologically based storyline, I was a little bit more in line with. Um, the Hope Larson, um, Margaret Scott stuff, which is just a little bit kind of more close to home in terms of like, you know, storytelling tone. I don't know. There's a lot. I was after reading cry for blood, which, you know, there was absolutely a plot there, but like it felt that every ounce of those, those panels were drenched with characterization. This one felt a lot more, you know, not say that these don't have character, but like this felt a lot more focused and concerned with the plot rather than like, you know, how much are we in Barbara's head? And then when we go to, we go to Barbara's head, it's usually like the, the same story of like, you know, I'm a good, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm great no matter who I am, which I feel like I've been told about a lot. It's fine. I like that they called back to Gordon's never give up. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fine. <laughs> but it's fine. I do like Castellucci's voice for Barbara, the best in a long time, probably the best since Fletcher. It really does sound like Barbara Gordon to me. Um, cause usually there's lines that I, I, I think, especially with Gail Simone, this didn't really sound right, but like, um, this sounds fine, but it's not. At the same time, it's not really hitting me in any sort. Of, I, I don't feel like I need to read this personally. I, it's, it's like it's okay. It's it's you know 2010s Batgirl by numbers. 
I know I told you this before, but like, this whole like you know Batgirl versus Oracle thing, I know we've seen this before, so that element felt very repetitious. It's interesting to see an Oracle as like a physical entity for Batgirl to fight, and I kind of like that idea from like a Saturday morning like villain type thing, or like it almost reminds me of like the feeling that you got from early uh, Venom stories, like Venom versus Spider Man stories, because it was this kind of piece of Spider Man's like previous life that you know was now a physical entity from the fight. Does this mean that we're going to get Oracle lethal protector, you know, drawn by uh, Todd McFarlane and stuff like that? So I totally love that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark Bagley. I have been reading Batgirl on and off. Like sometimes I'll fall like a few months behind and then like I'll read it all like in like a month or two. And uh, I interviewed Cecil Cachalucci, uh recently at New York Comic Con about this. I like some of the stuff that she had to say and like, the Jason Bard stuff feels weird to me, but she's kind of picking up the thread that like the previous uh, team left in terms of that, where they were like, you know, oh, he's redeeming himself and he has the hots for Babs. It is kind of weird for me still. Like, it's like, I mean, I, yes, I ship Dick and Babs, but I also like, you know, Babs and Jason Bard because of the Bronze Age and stuff. But I just can't see this version of them together because like I can't get past what he did. And it's weird for me that like he's like allowed to like walk around and like be on this like you know campaign team with her and then whenever she's like oh my god it's jason bard he like framed my father from earlier everyone's always like oh babs calm down jason's changed. like everyone's like gaslighting her about it like you shouldn't be upset that he tried to like frame your dad for one of the worst crimes possible like you're being unreasonable babs what do you think about oracle's monologue here is there any truth in what she's no <laughs> I mean, just no. It's it, it's a it's a okay. flimsy excuse for for them to fight, but no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. Mm, do you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't really. Do you? Do you feel like Batgirl abandoned Burnside? <sighs> I mean, that is the the center. I would say of of her point, her argument, because she's going to be for their. She's going to be there for Burnside when Batgirl abandoned it. So do you feel like potentially Batgirl did abandon Burnside? I mean, now I'm thinking about, okay, she went back to find herself like that, like the second time. And this refers like when she left for Asia then, and then elsewhere. Then like she went to Gotham in the Margaret Scott run. I guess in a way, I mean, like, um, I thought that she left Burnside in a, in a pretty good place. Like I thought Burnside was kind of like fixed or safe. So... I suppose she did Gordon clean events. energy and stuff like that for Burnside. I never got the sense that she just abandoned. It. I thought I thought that she like you know went traveling and kind of like you know took a leave of absence from it. But like I don't know. It, it, I mean, it's Burnside's not really. Is it Burnside? Like I guess it's still in Gotham. So like you know they need a hero. But see, that's the thing too. I always assumed and read it as like it's a neighborhood within Gotham, kind of like how like the Narrows are. So like it's not like Blue Haven. If she's in Gotham, like because Burnside is in gotham if she's protecting gotham like burnside is under that jurisdiction and because it's just a neighborhood there, like she's always like 10 to 15 minutes away if like something happens she's not like hours away but there's a bridge i feel like it's more separated than you guys think maybe that's true either way because it's within gotham and she does pack up and move right and she lives in gotham now well she moves out of the neighborhood though but like, it's kind of like how cities have certain names. she moves out of burnside yeah Burnside's a neighborhood. It's kind of like how like cities have like certain neighborhoods. I think it's farther than you think it is. So, is, are are you implying that that you think that like there's some truth that like she should never have left Burnside? Oh uh, well, 
I mean, that's more of an editorial <laughs> comment that I would put on there because they're trying to story Burnside and Frankie. Who knows if she's going to die? Gordon, everything from the Burnside run is being torched in a way. But the, I mean, she was forced to leave. I guess you know she left to follow grotesque, and then she just never came back. But it's, I mean, I think about Kamala Khan, and I, you know, if she she takes. New Jersey. Jersey, yeah, as her own, right? She is that here. So if she had left, would that count as abandoning New Jersey if she just moved to go somewhere else? For her, yeah, because there's a lot of that in there. I kind of just saw that Burnside as like, okay, well, this is where Batgirl is now, and this is kind of her version of Bloodhaven. Then, like, the editor's like, okay, she's in Gotham now, where she's basically been most of her life. So, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, because Burnside is in Gotham. It's not like Bloodhaven, which is a, which is like, a different right. city. So it, it, I, I never got the sense that like she. I feel like it might be a different city. No, I've never got the, the sense that it's 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 not. Gotham, you have to take a bridge to get there, which is but, weird. Yeah, but there's bridges within cities, though. I just thought it was like it was like the hipster town in Gotham. It, it, I, I guess it's like you know, in, it's, it's kind of like Greenwich Village in New York City. Yeah, like, like or in in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. there's like North Chat, which is definitely kind of a hipster area. But like you know, the bridge to cross there is like you know, it's not a very long bridge. Like I live in I live in the city of Tampa and there's a neighborhood that I live in called Hyde Park and I can take a bridge to get from Hyde Park to downtown Tampa and I'm still within the same city limits. But like I've crossed a bridge to go from one neighborhood to another. Okay, I would I'd have to do research if I wanted to continue this. We we could tweet at Cecil Katsalucci. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm, I'm very open to be proved wrong. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it would be I would probably look at the um, grotesque issue because i think it says how many minutes it takes for her to get to gotham let me go to the dc uh, wiki at burnside and see if it says, okay. says anything uh so i would say i think she did abandon burnside but not intentionally kind of like an abandonment light but she left and and i think that she had set up shock and she was their little hero down there and so i feel like when you leave there there is that absence and so i think uh, oracle in a sense the same but maybe a little more harshly than i would put it so this this is uh, two sentences long, and uh-huh. it's written by, like, a wikia person. So, like, this isn't, like, officially okay. from DC. So the weird thing is it makes my point, but it makes your point at the same time. Burnside okay. is a Gotham City neighborhood. So there's my point right there. It's a Gotham City neighborhood located across the Gotham River, which is your point. Barbara moved there when she needed to take a break from Gotham. And I'm like, wait, what? She moved there to take a break from Gotham, but it's in so Gotham City. maybe it's, City. like, Brooklyn? It's Brooklyn in New York City, maybe. Right, but it says it's the Gotham soap. Yeah, so there we go. It's it's okay. we're just as confused I as guess. before. I guess. Jason Barr, do you think he he's really going to take Batgirl down, or is there an alternate plan? Because all that he before this was this is a character change from one writer to the next because the previous writer Scott had him really trying to ingratiate himself with Batgirl, and now he hates her. So there is a bit of a change. Do you think he really is going to take her down? Are we going towards a let's get rid of Batgirl, Batgirl against the police arc? Now he's he's too schlubby to do anything effective. He's like Shaggy. I don't, I don't. I have no. I have zero confidence in him. I th- I, I think this is a trick. He's going to fool Oracle and then like, all right, Batgirl, now hit her in the sweet spot, okay. you know. And then like, and then Barb will be like, 
gosh, maybe he really has changed. Then they'll kiss and then I'll throw up. <laughs> oh, dear. I hope not, but I guess we'll see. And I, I don't know. The trajectory, I would agree with you if you we were still, I think, in Scott's Jason Bard characterization. But it seems like we've changed a bit. I think we're going to get to a Batgirl outlaw soon. So I don't know. Any idea why Batgirl stays underwater and removes her clothing for 19 minutes? Uh, <laughs> we're, we're like the Oracle robot, like spider drones looking for her, spider seekers. I guess Oracle could have scanned her, potentially. But why the clothes? I got the idea that like uh, this is still her like first quote-unquote costume, right? Or at least a prototype costume. So maybe it was like not really compatible for like scuba diving or, or underwater usage. So it was – Weighing down, like you know, it's funny. I, I, I never really questioned that. <laughs> Boy, I, <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, I, I imagine this just makes it easier to, to have her swim. Okay, I mean that's as good an answer as I would. It, otherwise, I, it's just very strange. I mean, she stays down there for the fifteen-minute rebreather plus four minutes extra, so it could potentially be sure that Oracle doesn't spot her. Um, but then, yeah, changing, getting rid of everything, it was, yeah, just really interesting. Barbara says that Oracle, her Oracle, made me a hero, a better hero than I could have ever been without her. So I think this is a pretty bold statement for sure. And, and I know that there are people on either of those camps, I'm sure. What do you, what do you think of that? I like the idea that she says, she made me a better hero than I could have been without her. Like, and if it, in regards to like, you know, her being Oracle, not like, you know, this external thing, because uh, it kind of proved her what her limitations were and what her, you know, potential was without the idea of like running across rooftops fighting crime. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement of that. Like, I, I don't think. And again, I, I like Barbara as Batgirl within reason. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, if we're insisting on this idea that like Oracle is an integral part of who Barbara Gordon is then I'm down for that. I don't like the context of it here because like, I'm trying to figure out a way to articulate this. Like I agree with it, but I don't think that I, that like Babs means it the way that I mean it. Where like, I I feel like as Oracle, she had a wider reach and she was able to like accomplish more. But this is like, I I feel like the way that Barbara's saying is like, oh yes, like I wasn't a real hero until I was Oracle or something like that. Or like being Oracle, taught me how to be a good person where like she was a good person before if that makes sense so like Mm -hmm. i i don't necessarily agree with that but like i mean it reminds me of like you know since we're on the 10th anniversary special like the discussions that we used to have with kevin cushing on like the spider-man call space message board over like you know is barbara more effective as batgirl or oracle i was probably very biased in those conversations she's like oh it's batgirl because i like her and I was like, well, that's fine. But, you know, engage with the, with the question. <laughs> we were all very big mansplainers 10 years ago. I'm sure. Yeah, I think I just – it's an interesting quote. I think it's it's really big. I think in context of what's going on, obviously she's upset that this oracle has perverted her original purpose, right? And has – we still don't know how she's been awakened, but there it is. Better, I think, is just the word that I would change. A better hero. Uh, maybe more complete, more holistic hero. I don't know. But just better. As if, you know, she was only doing so much as Batgirl. But – which, you know, might be true. But I think she's doing something different as Oracle potentially. So it, it's hard for me to compare it in that way. Any other thoughts on this particular issue? I'm assuming the next issue wraps up the arc, but I could be wrong. It's the year of the villain. Indeed. Uh, are you saying this is going to go over a year? 
Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, not that because it's already been dragging. Yeah, that, that, that's not a statement on the story. It's just like I, I don't like stories that last a year. Like, oh God, I hope not. I feel bad because like I, 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 this is not a run that like I am like thinking about too much. But when I kind of sit down and read it, it's like you know, I don't really care about the story, but the writing in terms of, like the like the character voice, I kind of dig that. I, I think it's a good voice for Robert Gordon, but like I don't care. For, I don't care about this plot. <laughs> Okay, well, what would you give it out of 10 bats? Uh, 6.5. 7 out of 10. Yeah, I'm going to stick with my general rating that I've been with a, a 7 out of 10 bats on this as well. Now over to Chris for his cornucopia of curiosities. Ah, that's like having twice as many new episodes of your favorite podcast than usual and an extra stocking stuffer in your holiday stocking. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'm scrapping all previously planned content for this month, and I'm reviewing Batman Adventures Holiday Special number 1, and in the Nightwatch segment, Nightwing number 66. Batman Adventures Holiday Special number 1 was dated January 1995, and had an original cover price of $2.95, and this was an oversized issue. This is available on the DC Comics app and Comixology at the time of this recording for the bargain price of $1.99. Apart from a one-page intro written by Paul Dini and art by Dan Reba, this issue contained five short stories, and I'll give a very brief summary of each of them. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. Our first story is Jolly Old St. Nicholas, written by Paul Dini and Bruce Tim, with art by Bruce Tim. It's December 3rd at Mayfield's department store, and GCPD members Harvey Bullock and Renee Montoya are working undercover as a Santa Claus and helper elf to catch shoplifters. Barbara Gordon is shopping for a gift for her dad and notices the cops in disguise, and then she surmises that there may be trouble. Barbara spies a child shoplifter, and it turns out there are several of them, as they converge into Clayface. Babs ducks into a dressing room, pricks a big toe on a pin, and adjusts her cowl and emerges as Batgirl. The fight goes outside, and Batgirl yells at the officers to shoot at Santa. Oh no, not Harvey, but an electric Santa display on wires. The officers oblige, and the wires fall and short out Clayface. But now, Harvey has the task of reaching into the gloppy form of the foe to retrieve the evidence. In the words of Harvey, ho ho frickin' ho. Next up, The Harley and the Ivy, by Paul Denny and Ronnie Del Carmen. It's December 17th and Harley and Ivy crash a party attended by Bruce Wayne. As Bruce tries to avoid a group of women when he inadvertently is under the mistletoe, he's kissed by Poison Ivy, and is now reluctantly under her spell. The evil duo wastes no time going to Mayfield's department store and rack up purchases on Bruce's credit card. Bruce tries to fight the drug, and backing he falls down an elevator shaft. The Batman later finds Harley and Ivy at a toy store, And a brief but brutal fight ensues, but Batman manages to knock down a Christmas tree on the villainous pair. Next up, White Christmas, written by Paul Dini and art by Glenn Murakami. Mr. Freeze has escaped from Arkham. We get a two-panel recap of Mr. Freeze's origin, and then Batman saves a mother and daughter from a potential car accident before he tracks down the villain to Gotham Cemetery. After an icy battle, Batman disables Mr. Freeze's freeze gun and asks Victor why he broke out. Mr. Freeze points to a headstone of his wife, Nora, saying today is their wedding anniversary, and that Nora loved snow. And Victor says it would be sad if there was no snow this year. And with that, Mr. Freeze surrenders, peacefully. 
The next story is, What Are You Doing New Year's Eve? Written by Paul Denny and Bruce Tim, with art by Kevin Altieri and Butch Luchik. On December 31st, Joker announces on TV that his New Year's resolution is not to kill anyone this coming year. As such, he only has a few hours left to kill as many people as possible. We find out Joker has stolen a hypersonic bomb capable of killing anyone within earshot, and he will likely use it at midnight at Gotham Square. When Batman arrives, to make matters worse, he finds several revelers wearing Joker masks. Batman does manage to find the real Joker, fight him during the year-end countdown, disable the bomb, and have a fallen bell encapsulate the Joker. Which brings us to our final three-page story, Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot, written by Paul Denny and art by Paul Reba. In the early morning hours after the previous story, Batman meets Commissioner Gordon at a diner for their traditional toast to survival and hopes that they will make it through another year. Gordon orders a cheesesteak to go and asks Batman what he wants, only to find him gone and having left just enough money for the check. The end. For my notes, I don't recall Clayface being able to separate into as many as four different entities, each being independent of each other. The Harley Ivy story, the Clayface story, and the Joker story would later be adapted for the animated episode Holiday Nights for an episode of The New Adventures of Batman. It's implied that Nora Freeze is dead, even though in the episode Deep Freeze, it indicates that she was still alive but under suspended animation. Nora would later be revived and cured of her terminal disease in the animated movie Batman and Mr. Freeze Sub-Zero, and of course in current issues of Detective Comics. Renee Montoya's elf costume is kind of on the short side, and she does complain about the cold. I don't know what department store elves wear these days, presumably nothing quite this short, but I do recall elf costumes being quite short when I was a little boy in Memphis, which, granted, wasn't quite as cold. I certainly do recall many a pin being found on the carpets of dressing rooms back in the day in department stores. Speaking of women, it's nice that Renee, Batgirl, Harley, and Ivy get a significant amount of panel time in this issue. For the creative team, this is a deviation from the regular ongoing, and you'd associate most of the talent found here with the animated show itself. The artwork is outstanding throughout, as is the writing. Interestingly, Mr. Freeze is the only villain that appears on the cover, and although he looks very menacing, the cover itself is misleading to the array of good stories and what's inside the book. All of the stories were excellent and well-drawn, with excellent facial work and stunning action sequences. The Batgirl Clayface story and the Harley Ivy story are my particular favorites. This, perhaps, is one of my all-time favorite Batman comic books. It just falls short of a masterpiece, but it's right up there. And I'm giving Batman Adventures Holiday Special number 1, 9 out of 10 bats. Now for everyone's favorite segment within a segment. It's Nightwatch. That's where I look at the current issue of Nightwing from a shipper's perspective. At the time of this recording, Nightwing number 66 is the current issue. The year of the villain continues this month with the acetate cover and Talon and the Court of Owls. Spoilers ahead. Picking up where we left off in Nightwing number 65, Talon has placed goggles on Dick, or Rick, Grayson, which implants him with new memories of his past, including William Cobb, not Bruce Wayne, taking in Dick after the death of his parents. Dick then gets lethal training from Cobb and the Court of Owls, and being capable of killing without any remorse. What? Meanwhile, the other Nightwings do what they can with the fires and riots in Bloodhaven, only to be confronted by Talon at issue's end, to be continued. Current love interest B does appear, with a line here or there, and nothing really more than a cameo. With that, I am compelled to give Nightwing number 66 
a cold. Repeat, cold shipper alert. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. Listeners, don't forget you can hear Stella on the Required Reading Podcast. I'd like to give a shout-out to my friends the Thessalians. Be sure to check out the Warlord Worlds, Tricker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and the Convention Correspondence Podcasts. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at BTO and Bat Books. That's BTO and Bat Books. BTO as in Batgirl Oracle and Bat Books as in Bat Books for Beginners. The Bat Books for Beginners podcast is another podcast that I can be found on that I co-host with my friend Jerry. That's where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collective material of Batman or related characters. You can also find us talking about independent comic books, other titles, movies, and whatnot on the Professor Frenzy show. Please check it out if you're not doing so already. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website, and please leave us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. Hey listeners, I'd like to wish all of you happy holidays this coming weeks and all the best for the year 2020. Sincerely, thank you very much for listening and your continued support. Will Chris be able to decide which issue to cover on the next episode? What plans does Stella have for her 10th anniversary and the coming year? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these snappy, snazzy, sneezeless, snobless, snoozeless questions will be snapshotted with a little snark and a snap in a snug snicker next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Ah, that's like an army full of reindeer from uh, an enchanted forest in Frozen 2. Hi guys, this is Chris. And as always, thanks for not fast forwarding. Thanks, Chris. Okay, the last segment is, because I haven't watched any anime, though I did start and watch five or four episodes with my nephew, but I have to complete that. Our literature recommendation, do either of you have any books that you have read recently that you would like to talk about? Uh, Indeed, I do. Actually, actually come back to me. I'm trying trying to start trying to recall uh, when the last time I've been here. Okay, Josh? Oh, dear. Okay, let me look. Yeah, because I'm there's been a few stuff. I, I've been reading so much nonfiction lately. I'm I'm looking at my cue list. Oh, <laughs> I'm not even going to say the name of that because that's way too controversial for this podcast. Um, I have started out of curiosity um, because it's it's a franchise that I've never really a lot of people are really into, but I've never really dwelt into it too much. I'm about maybe 20 percent into Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I decided after after we got back from L.A., I'm like, all right, I guess it's time to check out some other franchises. So I'm on Sorcerer Stone and it's not literature, but I'm on season two of Gilmore Girls. And yeah, so the, the, those are two things that I'm currently in the middle of doing. Not much has happened in Harry Potter and there's not much I can say about it on here because it's like I'm like at the beginning of the book. He's like just gained the Hogwarts. So I'm like, oh, yes, it's really interesting. He's a wizard. And people are like, yeah, no, no kidding, Josh. We read those books like. 15 years ago snape kills dumbledore or whatever that meme spoiler thing is okay so i've read a couple of books uh recently have you read stella let the right one in oh my wait let the right one in i don't know i haven't read it but this is funny that you say that is this what someone else no it's how we fight for our lives someone else uh no i have not read. okay neither have i but i've read uh (laughs) (laughs) what that's not how literature recommendations. Well, go. I've read that author John 
Ajvidi Lindqvist. I've read he's a Swedish okay. author. I've read his uh, follow-up work to that titled I Am Behind You. It's a weird, <laughs> trippy uh, book where some like 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 a, a a group of people kind of go like camping and like when they wake up like there's no there's nothing left like there's no trees there's like no horizon there's like it's it's like it's like they're on kind of a blank line of existence and they kind of go crazy and it's it's a strange book and it gets very violent near the end but like it it, it was a kind of interesting reading oh. experience. And I also fo- I followed that up with uh, a mystery book called An Unwanted Guest by uh, Shari Lapena. That was okay. That, that was like, you know, kind of like a uh, whodunit murder mystery, kind of, you know, people locked in a, in a hotel, you know, and they can't get out kind of thing. It was fine. It was, it was all right. So um, those wow. are the books that I've, I've read. Uh, I would recommend I Am Behind You because that really was kind of an interesting experience. It was very um, kind of creepy and kind of like it was, it was not really something I've read before. And like I said, like, like a, this is this author of Let the Right One In, which is adapted for a film, which I believe he wrote the screen might play for again. And currently, you know, I am in uh, nearing the end of rereading Harry Potter, the Sorcerer's Stone, which I've not Wait, read. Really? I mean, I've read that before, but I've not read that since I read it the first time. And it's reading that at the same time. Yeah, it's true. Which part are you on? Um, he's like just getting the Hogwarts. Like he like he just like I guess got fitted and like he he met like I, I'm assuming they didn't say the name yet, but it's like the 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 guy from uh Star Labs Draco whatever Draco Malfoy's in Slytherin. Yes, yeah. He's like oh you know Hagrid. He's so hideous. Like the, the, the way the <laughs> yeah um yeah I, I I'm I'm after like like the Quidditch match uh and when they when they see like the the, the dragon get born, but like. Um, it's oh, well, thanks for the spoilers. <laughs> so that's what I'm reading uh, currently. Okay. I have a couple here. What is this here? One will be a Christian literature that I'm going to recommend. It's called Jesus Feminist, An Invitation to Revisit the Bible's View of Women mm. by Sarah Bessie. And I'm going to have a – I call it a sub- – <laughs> Subversive Feminist Book Club. We're going to have a meeting about it in uh, next week, actually. A, let's see here. Sarah Bessie didn't ask for Jesus to come in and mess up all her ideas about a woman's place in the world and in the church, but patriarchy, she came to learn, was not God's dream for humanity. Bessie engages critically with scripture in this gentle and provocative love letter to the church. Written with poetic rhythm, a prophetic voice, and a deeply biblical foundation, this loving yet fearless book urges today's church to move beyond man-made restrictions and fully welcome women's diverse voices and experiences. It's at once a call to find freedom in the fullness, hope, glory, and work for Christ, and a very personal and moving story of how Jesus made a feminist out of her. So I recommend that if you're female and you have, I guess, any association with Christianity. Christianity. Uh, this next one is called <laughs> In the Dream House. It's a memoir by Carmen Maria Machado. And I, I recommend it, but just like Euphoria, I recommend it cautiously because <laughs> it gets rough and the language. Uh, so for years, Carmen Maria Machado has struggled to articulate her experiences in an abusive same-sex relationship. In this extraordinarily candid and radically inventive memoir, Machado tackles a dark and difficult subject with wit, inventiveness, and an inquiring spirit as she uses a series of narrative tropes, including classic horror themes, to create an entirely unique piece of work which is destined to become an instant classic. 
And the idea is really just breaking out because we know, obviously, that there is heterosexual domestic abuse and often the man is is at the front of it. I said often, not always. and But no one really thinks about, well, what about you know these same-sex partnerships? There's also abuse. There's abuse everywhere that happens. So she sort of breaks into that. But there are some really amazing lines that she uh, puts out in there. Uh, I think one of my favorite ones was when she went to the doctor and the doctor said that she was overweight. She had to lose weight. And she said, yeah, I, I need to lose the 105 Across the room. blonde-haired female that's, yeah, that's sitting out there in the hall. And you're like, yeah, you you really do. So just really powerful moments there. Then I read Every Heart a Doorway by, uh, ooh, sh- maybe Shannon, Shannon McGuire. And let's see here. Oh, Eleanor West's Home for Wayward Children. No solicitations, no visitors, no quests. Children have always disappeared under the right conditions, slipping through the shadows, under a bed or at the back of a wardrobe, tumbling down rabbit holes and into old wells and emerging somewhere else. But magical lands have little need for used-up miracle children. Nancy tumbled once, but now she's back. The things she's experienced, they change a person. The children under Miss West's care understand all too well, and each of them is seeking a way back to their own fantasy world. But Nancy's arrival marks a change at the home. There's a darkness just around each corner, and when tragedy strikes, it's up to Nancy and her newfound schoolmates to get to the heart of the matter, no matter the cost. Uh, A bit of a novella, I would say. It's only 173 pages. You've got an asexual main character, a uh, transgender male character as well, though they don't name it that, name him that. But yeah, so really interesting. And they don't like make focus on those characters, but they're just like, hey, they're just characters. That's who they are. And they move through, which I appreciated more so than um, Let's Talk About Love, which I shan't recommend. And then finally, I, well, currently I'm reading Between the World and Me by Coates, so I can't nice. fully recommend that yet. But I also read the first three volumes of The Umbrella Academy by Gerard Way and Gabrielle Ba, and uh, I very much enjoyed those. So that's what I've been reading. In January, I guess I'll have to go through and talk about <laughs> all of the books that I read and, and which ones were my tops in 2019, do something like Professor Cheapskate. Like, so that's our <laughs> recommendation. And after about three hours or so, uh, we, we have come to the end of the 10th anniversary. So as always, thanks to my two cohorts. And I'll give you the space now to pimp your ride and, and tell us where our listeners can support you. So Don, why don't you go first? I just want to start off by saying thank you for having us on every year, um, despite your best intentions. Thank you for delivering this podcast to us thank you for enlightening us and educating us on this character thank you for your kindness and consideration when going to certain reading certain stories and inviting different voices on to converse with you uh all the great hours of entertainment uh the great interviews you had with like scott Beatty, chuck dixon brian q miller barbara kiesel Margaret scott and many others um, I know you put a lot of effort in this podcast. You put a lot of emotion in this podcast, and it really has paid off. And I don't think you get enough recognition or credit for it, even though everyone basically loves you. Um, <laughs> you still put out a very top-notch podcast that is the best, right up there with the best of them. And I think that uh, is worth celebrating for 10 years. And I'm glad that you're still going. And I hope that as long as it, it means something to you, you continue to uh, make it what it is, which is an ever-evolving, very insightful, uh, 
show about a character that you love. And I think that's important. Thank you so much. You forgot to pimp your stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, questions we don't have answers. Myself, the Chute Man, talking about anime and politics and uh, women. So check that out, kinoanswers.com. And, and you're somewhere else now that you weren't a few months ago, weren't you? Oh, you know what? That's true. <laughs> I am a freelance contributor for DCUniverse.com. I, uh, as of this recording, I have an article up there called Green Arrow, the original social justice warrior, talking about his uh, Daniel Neal, Neil Adams, uh, 70 uh, era comic book with uh, Green Lantern, um, as well as many others. Um, yes, you can find my stuff on the news section of DCUniverse.com. We're right on a variety of topics uh, from month to month, several times a month. And uh, yeah, if, if you want to uh, continue uh, pumping my bank account, feel free to uh, click those articles. You get paid in clicks? Um, I don't know how. I do, I do get no, paid. It, it, it's, it's a flat fee. Oh. So they have me. They have Donovan. So uh, Stella, you are next. Uh, so we'll see if that'll happen this year. I'm going to silence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like waiting for reaction. I was like, you're net. Like, <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um. I guess I'll pimp my stuff and then I'll do the big thank you thing that Donovan did. Uh, it'll be hard to follow his, though, because it was so long and heartfelt. You can find me on uh, DCComics.com's new section and DC Universe, which is the service DC Comics and DC. I, I call them sister sites, you know, but they're like different, basically, departments of DC, different editors. In fact, like it's, it, it's complicated. Like Warner Brothers is a very big company, uh, but I write on the new section for both of them and have been for over a year now it's made my 2019 a lot different um i've uh, seen a lot of things and grown in a lot of ways as a freelancer doing that and uh it's been lots of fun um i'm not involved in this but i do want to pimp out that like if you're subscribed to dc universe you should really check out harley quinn because uh the animated series because it is awesome it is hilarious uh it's very raunchy much like that burlesque show that we went to except uh less tassels so there's that Wait, you, there's actual nipples and such? There, okay, when I said no tassels... It was violent. Okay, when I said no tassels, I, I meant, like, meaning, like, it's like the burlesque show in terms of raunchy, but no, like, meaning there's no nudity, no tassels, so no. Oh, okay, yeah, oh, so okay. I probably... Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that, because I should specify. And Damien is a sweet potato pie, uh, which uh, <laughs> is a funny joke. And if you're a Dick and Bab shipper, they are in Young Justice uh, Season 3. There's a lot of shipping between them there. In fact, they are like the second to last shot of the show, I think, is like Dick and Babs like having coffee together at like Bibbo's. It's, it's honestly adorable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, yeah, there, <laughs> there is so much. And, and spoilers there. Sandra Kane's there. It's a uh, it's a dream. That's where you could find me. I'm just trying to think if there's anything like particular else, because I mean, I guess we got to do a final episode of Gotham Chronicles sometime. But like uh, and comic book film review, we record that uh, when everyone is available at the same time. But I'm not really doing much else in the podcasting world. So in terms of thanking Stella, um, I look forward to this every year. It's always a highlight of my December doing the anniversary show. There's always lots of laughs. And um, I love pre-gaming with everyone in L.A. as we, you know, uh, had lots of laughs at the Fast and the Furious ride breaking down and, uh, you know, little little things throughout the trip, like Donovan admitting during the Connors taping that he used to throw pizzas. So uh, 
Finally. Finally. <laughs> you could all listen to it. Like, that was recorded by the WB people. We could probably, like, find it if we wanted to. So, um, back roll at Oracle um, has been a huge part of my life. And I was even thinking about, like, man, this podcast, because um, right now I'm, I'm at my parents' house. And because uh, there was an event for my brother. And I was thinking, like, oh, yeah, Stella, like, since she started the podcast, like, she's, like, met my parents, like, because I, like, said to my dad and Mindy, I was like, I'm going upstairs to record with Stella. So uh, this podcast has brought us closer together, which I love it for that, too. So happy 10-year anniversary, BTO. And as always, thanks for the spoilers. Oh, thanks for the spoilers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny because someone on Twitter actually made mention of Donovan's baby, that it's got to be a couple years since that baby was around as well. And I said, yes, thank you for remembering about Tomas. At least the stranger on Twitter remembers <laughs> and not his own father. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where is he, by the way, Don? Somewhere here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't even know. CPS is on its way. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. CPS. Well, th- <laughs> thank you, of course, to you two for coming on and being unafraid to tackle some tough issues um, and incur my wrath if it needs to be incurred. So remember, you can always send any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Backroll to Oracle and follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And be sure to support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. And once again, thanks to my High Comics for being my sponsor for 10 years as well. Thanks for putting up with me for sponsoring. Yeah, my show, Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Remember that next week, well, actually, this will drop, I guess, on Tuesday. So that means tomorrow, if you're listening. So that is December 11th. At 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'm going to be hosting a call-in show. And my Skype ID is Backroll the Oracle, so you just have to message me. I'll put you in a little green room, and we'll pull you up one at a time. My co-host for that, helping me out, I'm ever so grateful to him, will be Chris, in fact, of uh, his curiosity. So I'm super excited about that. And what I want to know from you guys when I talk to you is – a Babs origin story or a favorite Babs moment, favorite podcasting moment that you've heard on this show, and then any question that you want. So I look forward to talking to you guys because, again, you're 50% of the reason why I'm doing this. So thanks again for everything. And until next time. Fly on, on, Babs Babs lovers. lovers. (laughs) lovers. Yeah, there you go. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? Okay, uh, don't pay the guys as long as we don't hear the feet.
Yeah, I think it's those dinosaurs that just popped out at you. Those are both dinosaurs. I know. I'm recording all of this. Turn it off! Why did they sell it? 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 Why